Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 13. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We do not speak for AA. We only speak for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. Sober Shares is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad that you are here, and I hope that you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to him so that he can introduce himself and give his sobriety date if he chooses to. Yeah, I'm Gary Kaufman. Uh, I got sober December 27th, 1984. Okay, wow, I'm not super good at math. How long is that about? Years? 36. 36 years? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was two. I was two <laughs> when I got sober. <laughs> he was a very young man. That's fantastic. So you've been, that's, that's amazing. You've been sober a long, long time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where were you born? Okay, yeah, I was born in uh, Wichita, Kansas. And uh, 1962 family I was the first of uh, three kids, and we moved to California, Long Beach, in 1965. Wow. You know, at that time, it was like the land of opportunity. People were moving out there because for jobs and stuff. So, you know, my family life was cool. My parents were cool. My, uh, I, I say cool, they were, they were just kind of hippies, you know, in a way. Um, my dad, you know, my mom got pregnant in a wheat field. Well, she was, con- I was conceived in a wheat field. I guess, I guess I was kind of not totally expected. I wasn't planned, you know. So there's just a lot happening. We moved, we lived in this little apartment in North Long Beach and my parents didn't have a lot of money. And, but my dad was an alcoholic. And so he was drinking, you know, and it was still working for him. And then we, we moved down to, they borrowed some money from, from my mom's parents and we moved down to Belmont Shore in, in, in Long Beach and it was a totally different world and I was uh, eight, nine years old. And How was it different? What do you mean? Uh, you know, I mean, we moved from kind of a middle to lower income neighborhood in an, from a, in an apartment, you know, to three blocks from the beach, middle to upper class beach community and just a lot, a lot to do, a lot to see and, and excitement and fun and it was you know, 1969 and, and it was like Vietnam and free love and a whole bunch of stuff going on. And so it was super exciting for me as a kid. Oh, totally. Did you get in the water much? Were you doing much in the ocean? Yeah, I was. I started surfing relatively young. I think I was 11 or 12, went to Seal Beach and, Hmm. you know, I know you've surfed Seal Beach, I think. (laughs) So So we surfed River Jetty and River Jetty was was warm because of the power plants, you know, so it was cool. You just get in there. It was like 85 degrees, you know? Yeah. So I learned how to surf (laughs) there, you know, the power plant discharge makes the ocean. warm. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I grew up and I, and I, you know, I I had a pretty good childhood. I mean, I I remember that the worst thing I remember is my dad was yelling and screaming and and making a big scene because he was either drunk or he was, uh, you know, dry, you know, he was just unfit. He needed a drink. The times he was pissed off, he needed a drink. And, and then, the times that he wasn't, you know, he was just 
come home at three in the morning. My mom would say, where's the check? You know, on payday. And he'd say, I don't know. And he blew it all in the bar. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of thing. And so I was a little afraid. I was confused and afraid as a young kid when things started getting bad with my dad. Okay. That's gotta be scary. But that's so cool that you grew up in California. That is nice. What kind of surfboards were you riding? Were you doing the small, the boogie board, the oh, short no. longboards? <laughs> I was I just grew up on um, I don't even think I ever had a longboard. Boogie boards came out after some time and they were mostly just used for boogie, you know, body surfing, you know, boogie stuff. But I was just riding, you know, mid sized normal kind of boards. I would go to harbor surfboards or Bruce Jones or, you know, I wasn't a great surfer. I mean I, I could I could definitely surf and stand up and do stuff and, and have some fun. And, but some of the guys I knew were really good surfers. You know, they were, they could take off late and, you know, on a big overhead wave and like it was nothing. And it, and something about it just kind of scared me, you know, it's dangerous. dude. (laughs) I've gone straight from the beach surfing to the hospital several times, dude. The first time I ever got staples was in my head from my frigging board. I crashed and my board flew up in the air. It was one those deals where I fell down in the water and my board flew up in the air and I'm assuming what happened with the lifeguard told me what he saw was that the board flew straight up in the air and then came down and the fin came down like a hatchet directly across the top of my head yeah and I immediately knew I was cut and I came up and I I came out and the lifeguard's like you got to go to the hospital bro I was like look at it look at it and he's like dude you gotta go to the hospital and so I went and I got to the hospital and they're like uh yeah we're gonna try something new uh (laughs) we're gonna put staples in your head I was like do I need stitches or like you need staples yeah and I was like, holy moly. Where, where was this? This was in Ventura, California. I was surfing at a place called C Street and uh, California Street. And I got whacked in the head. Um, but when I was living in Carlsbad, we had a power plant there as well. And we had a water discharge deal from the power plant. And I would always recommend to my friends that we surf there. Because yeah, <laughs> it was winter. warmer? Yeah, 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 totally warmer. Right on. Totally warmer. So I really enjoyed that. Um, can you tell us about what were your thoughts like about spirituality when you were a kid? Were you all going to church or not even? Or what were you all doing? Yeah, my my uh, my mom. I I was raised in a not not extremely strict church, you know, household. But we were Episcopalian, and we and I went to like uh, there was another local little church that was around the corner from where we grew up called Bayshore Community Church, and it was just more of a. They had a lot of events there, and there was a lot of church camp and church school and mm-hmm. and events on Halloween, and and they just had a. They were. I remember doing that, going to the church to to do these different events and kind of stay busy in a in a good environment. But as far as church Sundays, we did that when I was younger, and. Um, I just thought it was boring and I didn't really understand it. And it was a lot of thee and thou and thy. And mm-hmm. I just thought, wow, this is, so I, I just couldn't really understand it. So I couldn't get into it, you know, too much. And then later I just stopped going. I've always believed in God for sure. And, uh, but I, it, it was, it was lacking in, in, in when I was a kid, I just didn't understand it, you know, and it wasn't that interesting to me. Yeah, I was raised in the Highland Park United Methodist Church in Dallas, and I was the same way. <laughs> I think it's a great church, probably a lot of cool people there. Um, it seems like it was, for sure. My mom went to SMU, and she that was her church when she went to Southern Methodist University. And so she's like, I got baptized at Highland Park United Methodist. Long story short, I went there, or I was forced to go there. And I, I wasn't feeling it, dude. I wasn't feeling... I mm-hmm. like the architecture. 
<laughs> I thought the arch- I thought it was a beautiful building and the stained glass was cool and the art was cool, but the kids were not cool to me because I didn't go to Highland Park United Methodist School District. I went to Carrollton Farmers Branch Independent School District, so they didn't know who I was. And so to say the least, they were uh, mean to me and ignored me and did not include me. So I was getting a rough time in school Monday through Friday in public school. And then I would have Sunday off and that was my only good day. I would watch cartoons and chill. And then Sunday I would go to church and get harassed. And so I just stopped going, dude. When I was yeah. like 12 or 13, I'm like, no moss, mom, no moss. I was like, I don't like it there. I was like, the only thing I like at the end, they give out free cookies and juice. That's the only thing I like there. I remember that. That was the cool part. That I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The cookies weren't even that really that they great either. Dude, they were dry and cheap, but it was something. It was sugar. It was sugar. I want to circle back to, to some real quick. First, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to my lifelong friend. His name is Mark Buffkin, and I want to thank him for a financial donation that he made this week to the podcast project, uh, Sober Shares, uh, via PayPal. So a shout out and much love to my buddy, Mark Buffkin, for moving this project forward. And the other thing I want to say about Mark Buffkin is when we were living in California and I took that surfboard to the dome and got those staples, I was um, not in a strong financial position and I did not have um, insurance. And so uh, when I left the hospital, they're like, you got to come back in 14 days and get them cut out. And I was like, okay. I was like, is that included in this price for this emergency room visit? He's like, no, it'll probably be another two or $300 for us to cut them out. But it only take like three or four minutes and you'll be in and out. But it'll probably be another two to $300. I didn't have two or 300 bucks. So I went home and I agonized about it. My friend Mark was a pre-med student and he had gone to pre-med at Tulane. And he kept, <laughs> he kept looking at it every day. He's like, I know where you're going with it. He's <laughs> like, bro, he's like, bro, I could cut those out. He's like, bro, he's like, I could totally cut those out for you. Easily. No, yeah, totally. That's the word. That's the adjective he used. He's like, bro, I could easily cut those out and save you two or three hundo. And I was like, yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so we move forward and I guess I forgot to cut them out maybe like on time or something. And um, the, the skin kind of grew over the top of the head of the staple. So when it came time for me to tell him to cut them out, uh, I, it had overhealed a little bit. And also he did not have the tool to do it. So you still have the staples in? No, no. I let him try. Okay. I let him try because he started looking at it. He's like, dude, I'm going to have to dig a little bit. And I'm like, what? He's like, dude, it's healed over the staple. It's in your head. I was like, okay. He's like, I'm going to start digging. I was like, whatever, dude. So he did. And I have never felt. And I let him try for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I tears streaming down my face. And I was like, oh. I was like, yo, bro, I was like, you've got to stop, man. Was he using like, uh, I don't even remember. Alcohol and some I tweezers think he was using, or something. I think he was trying to use the staple removers from Office, Deep, Office Depot. <laughs> you know, the staple removers that you take them out of paper Come with? Come on, dude. <laughs> I think he was using that. Or maybe it was a flathead screwdriver. I don't, or I don't know. Some pliers. Dude, I don't know what it was. But, uh, you know, 10 minutes later, uh, just tears coming down my face and I was like he's like stop dude I was like I'll find two or three hundred dollars I go to the hospital I get to the hospital and they actually have a tool that I wasn't aware of to cut that out and the dude like was like snip 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 and just pulled them all right out sure so special shout out to Mark for the financial donation to help us move this project That's a forward. great story, man. <laughs> and thank you for attempting to cut my staples out, but that is not one of your strong skills. Mark, sets. dude. Yeah. <laughs> I 
trust. He's lives in New Jersey right now. He's probably driving around in his car right now, commuting to New York City where he works, and he's probably like, "Oh my god." Okay, so when did? You, well, I was about to ask this. When did you first become aware of alcohol, and what were your initial thoughts about? Okay, so I know that your dad was drinking. What were your thoughts about alcohol? Were you scared of it? Did you say, "Oh, I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to do that"? Or what were you thinking about it when you were a kid? I wasn't scared of it. I, I didn't. I was really neutral about it. I think I took the first sip of any alcohol was a beer. And it was, and it tasted terrible. It was just like, I just didn't have any desire to drink it. But people were drinking it, you know. And uh, and then I had some wine, some cheap wine. Remember Spinata or Annie Greensprings or some of that cheap rocket, you know, sugar water wine. And then I could just drink seven gallons of that stuff, and it would get me where I needed to go. But I wasn't scared of it. I I, I do remember. The, how I felt. And that was why I wanted more. I think, you know, like we talk about, you know, why drink for the effect, but I didn't know that in the beginning, but eventually, you know, shortly after I had my first drink, I realized, God, man, I I like the way I feel when I drink this. Yeah. You know, so the taste wasn't as important as, as how I was going to feel. Totally. Well, I'm scared to ask this next question. Did your dad's drinking ever get resolved or addressed or did he, whatever happened with that? Oh, no, it's totally cool. It's, it, it got resolved. Yeah. My dad stopped drinking in 1973. I was 11 and my mom threatened to leave him if he drank again and he drank again and she left and she got us kids and left and said, you know, um, uh, when you get home, I'm not going to be there and da, 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 and all that. And so he, he said, just give me one more chance and I won't, I won't drink again. And, and he, sure enough, he didn't drink again. He needed to get sober in AA. He got, uh-huh. so he went, he had some, some, uh, what do you call it? Some hypnotherapy by this psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of like talked to his subconscious. They put him under and talked to his subconscious and said, you know, take away the alcoholism, right? You know, I don't know what they mm-hmm. said, but it mm-hmm. was just like one of these kind of funky things that, that worked. And then he's that coupled with some, some antidepressants, I think over the years has helped him, but, but he's been sober since 73. He hasn't had a drink. Wow. That's so impressive. And that, a quick shout out to the listeners out there. This, this podcast is focused on kind of 12 step recovery. That's what most of our guests, if not all of our guests have, have used uh, to get sober, but Alcoholics Anonymous, it even says so in the literature that we don't have a monopoly on getting sober. There are other ways to get sober. Some people get sober uh, like Gary's dad. Some people get sober in church. Some people just straight up quit cold Turkey. There's several ways to get sober. For me, my best choice has been the 12-step program community because it just has helped me so much. It has allowed me to have a spiritual experience, which has allowed me to have a profound personality change, which has allowed me to not drink and use drugs anymore. And that's been my path and that's what's worked for me. So that's kind of what we're showcasing here on this um, show. How did you uh, secure alcohol as a minor? Were you, did you have an older friend or how are you getting it? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. I I haven't thought of that in years. (laughs) I really haven't. You know, I used to, um, God, uh, I don't know what the, one of the first ways, I think when, you know, we used to call it pimping beer, you know, we'd pimp beer, we'd stand out there and wait for some guy that looked relatively cool. Then he was 21 and say, Hey, you know, can you buy us some beer? And and that might take an hour. Sometimes it takes five minutes, but that's probably the first way I did. And then stealing was, was, was a nice way. I, I found stealing was <laughs> easy and quick. And um, sometimes it was just grab and go, you know, grab it out of the, out of the deal and run, you mm-hmm. know, and I could run pretty fast and whoever was behind the counter most likely couldn't catch me. Yeah. And, but then after that it was, uh, I had a fake ID. 
Nice. You know, so Me too. You know, hey, you know, I had a fake ID. I had a terrible fake ID. The first one I had was terrible. It was laminated from Arizona. <laughs> I don't even think it was my photo. On the it back just, it said novelty. Like, <laughs> this was like what, the worst fake ID in the history of, of fake IDs. And then eventually yep. I got kind of smart and I, I got a buddy of mine. He was born in 57 and I was born in 62. He was five years older than That's me. Perfect. And I got his I got his uh, birth certificate and I went down the DMV. Oh, dude. And I went down. So I was Steve Cadby for a few years. <laughs> Years. What was his birthday? You remember the yeah, month? I don't year? remember. I know it was fifty-seven. He was you born. His address? And oh his... no! But I just, I just, you, I don't remember any of that. I just remember. Oh, I mean, I had it memorized at you, that yeah, point. Yeah, you got absolutely. Know at the time. No, no, I had yeah. it down. I, I was. What's your? How tall are you? What do you weigh? Yeah, what do you weigh? I had all that down. He was, he was yeah. very much the same as me. But he had blonde hair, brown eyes, and in nineteen fifty-seven, he's five years older. And yeah. sometimes I was a little bit like, you know, I looked like I was seventeen, but I was trying to pull off twenty-two. Yeah, yeah. But I really looked seventeen, you know. But they, they, they just, but. Yeah, I was Steve Cabby for quite a while. That's funny. Some of my friends would have fake IDs, and we'd be trying to roll into the club, and they, the, the bouncers would be like, what's your name? And they would give their real name. I'm like, dude, dude, <laughs> what are you doing, dude? He's, don't tell him your real name. Tell him the name on the ID you just handed him. And they're like, oh, yeah. Too Jason, late. Jason Adams. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what's your address? like, I don't know. I'm God. Like, I'm like, yeah, Terrible. Bro, this is going very horrible right now. <laughs> uh, when did you start to drink on a regular basis and what did it do for you? I know what it did for me, but what did it do for you? So you know what my drinking did for you? I know what it did for me. It changed <laughs> me. I've never told that story on this podcast and I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to showcase you. But when I started drinking at 13, it did something for me that I will address at a later podcast, but I would like to hear today what, um, what it did for you, how it made you feel. Oh, you know, I think it, the the first memory I have what it did for me was I think it just took away all all my uh fear you know it took away being scared about other people mm -hmm. you like know a guy yeah my dad or guys that were bigger than me in junior high school or girls maybe girls even now for sure <sighs> so girls hard. scared me you know I didn't me know too. what am I supposed to do am I supposed to ask you out right yeah. now and how do I do that and they uh, weren't looking very interested in me either it <laughs> <laughs> was like what is this guy so I think you know it took away the fear but also you know, it, which is almost synonymous. It gave me courage, you know, it gave me that feeling like, you know, I can do this. I can, I can do this. I can ask her or ask him or, you know, be involved or do things. And it just uh -huh. gave me that sense of confidence to do, uh, do some things, you know? Yeah, me too. I was shocked how it gave me the confidence to get out on the dance floor and talk to the prettiest girls in school where I would never even really, I mean, I would look at them, but I would never, you know, it just had a lot of issues around, you know, chicks not digging me. But when I was 13, I started drinking. Everything in my brain changed to, yo, what's up? You know, I would straight walk up to them and rap at them and just try to line some stuff up for yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. And I was the same little skinny, ratty, little 13-year-old looking kid, but my confidence level just changed so heavy. Did you ever experience blackouts? A lot of people on this podcast have. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, uh, the, in the beginning, when I was 12, 13, those times I had some wine and, you know, maybe, you know, threw up or something. I, I didn't have a blackout, but I don't remember. I think most of my drinking was coupled with blackouts for sure. Oh, really? Because I never had the ability to stop. Once I started, I never had the ability to stop. I couldn't control the amount I took and I couldn't stop when I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I don't, I always remember not remembering everything that happened. Oh, really? 
like that, that I just don't remember. Like, I don't know what happened. Where's my keys? It's like, dude, where's my car? You know, it's just all that kind of stuff. What did I do? And, and I would end up running, I was a nightclub guy in Southern California. I was always going to nightclubs. And so I'd run into these girls that I, and that I would meet and they looked familiar and I, and, and, and they would look at me and just shake their head. And they just look at me and just shake their head back and forth. Like, you asshole or, or, or whatever, you know, they uh -huh. just look at me like you pathetic. And I was like, I didn't know what it was about. I, I'm obviously did or <laughs> said something that w wasn't cool. Yeah. And, um, because I was in a blackout, I couldn't remember. So, yeah. you know, that's the thing about blackout. I'll just say this. Real, uh, the, the thing about blackout that's interesting is that when, when like in, in the 12 step program, we have this, you know, thing where we go back and we, we make amends, we make things right with people that we've harmed. And it's like, making the list of the people that I'd harmed, I don't, I can't remember all of the things I did. Okay. So it's interesting, like, and, and I know that my higher power, you know, who I choose to call God will provide everything I need to do that process. If I just am open and, and willing, but it, I always wonder like who and <laughs> who's out there that I haven't ever gone back and kind of said, Hey, remember that one night, you know, but it, it, it all works out, you know? I agree with that. I got a quick story about that when I made my uh, list of people that I had harmed and then I was supposed to go make direct amends to them. I, I was the same as you. I could not recall all of them because I was running and gunning and living like almost like a gangster lifestyle for a long time. And I'm sure I heard a lot of people and it just didn't show up on my radar screen. So, but I did, I got in sobriety and I tried the best I could and I made a list and I, I did all my amends and I thought I was done until one day by walking to Callaway's nursery and this guy looks at me and says, Michael, you owe me money. And I looked at him and I had no idea who he was. No recognition of who wow. he was or what he was talking about, but he knew my first name and he knew my last name and he knew the dollar amount. And so there was like the cashiers all stopped. Cause he said it loud, the cashiers all stopped and looked at me and they're like, yo, what's getting ready to go down here. And so I was like, okay. I was like, Hey, um, I was like, let's step over here and talk for just a minute. Let me, let me figure out who you are. And so we stepped over to the side over by the dandelions and the roses. And he <laughs> quickly and kindly explained to me who he was, how he knew me, the dollar amount and what I had done to him and how long ago it was and how mad he was about it and how I had hurt him and taken advantage of him financially. And I was like, wow. Yeah, man, that's what I said. I was like, I was just going there to buy some dirt. To but, but that's a pretty cool thing that it's like pretty serendipitous, uh, you know, experience with being able to clean that up and then yeah, it it's happened. one it, last thing that you got to deal with. Not that you were excited about it. No, it happened, quick. <laughs> it, it happened quickly. It was not on my radar screen. It was not on my conscious and it was not bothering me, but obviously it was bothering the stranger that I had had brief interfacings with about 10 years before. So luckily at the time, I'm not trying to brag or anything like that, but I had several $100 bills in my pocket in cash. He gave me the dollar amount, and I think it was like three twenty-five for the value of the the transaction that I had, you know, you know, stolen from this guy and taking advantage of him. So I was like, okay, well, I just want you to know that I regret my behavior, and I remember that, and I remember you, and I want to make it right, and not that it matters at all, but I want to let you know that I was drunk then. And I'm sober now. Mm -hmm. I've been sober about yeah. four and a half, five years, and I want to make it right. 
Um, so I've got some cash in my pocket. I'm going to give it to you. You said it was like 325. Do you mind if I give you $400 without make it okay? Or can we accept 400 bucks right now? He's like, yes, sir. And I was like, okay. So I reached in my pocket and he looked shocked. Mm-hmm. He looked shocked. And he's like, what? You actually going to pay me? That's great. I was just going to yell at you. And so uh, <laughs> I pulled out the money, pulled out four $100 bills and put it in my hand. And then he said, he said, all right. And he walked off. He didn't say thank you. He didn't. He just walked off. He just took the money, and I, yeah. I, I, I stood there for a minute, in the middle of this gorgeous nursery. There was flowers everywhere and fauna, and it was just gorgeous. And I just sat there for a minute, and I just felt happy and grateful and calm that God had put him there and put me there and put that cash in my pocket and allowed me to make it right. And so that's my, my I quick, love that. That's my quick love that. Yeah, that's my quick story. Um, when did it occur to you that you might have a problem with alcohol, and what did you do about that thought? Well, you know, I, I, I was talking about that yesterday. I, I spoke at a meeting in, uh, in Fort Worth and I was trying, I was, t- I was sharing all this different stories about um, just pathetic stories about my drinking and the experiences and what happened as a result of my drinking. But I never, for over and over and over again, never said to myself, you know, after some bad, after getting out of jail, I never thought, you know, I need to look at this drinking. Mm-hmm. I need to stop and really look at this drinking. I just never did that. And I think, you know, I blocked it out because I, I wanted to keep drinking. I didn't want to stop drinking. So I didn't want to look at that stuff. So, but I think I, I think I started to realize I had a problem. It was probably the same year that I got sober or within that same year, uh, the consequences got so bad and it wasn't the external things happening as much as it was internally. What do you mean by that? Within me. So I was in and out of jail and I owed people money and I was, you know, guys were after me and all these different things were going on, but those weren't the, the main contributors to the a realization that I really had a problem with alcohol. And when, what was, was I think inside of me, I, uh, I was just miserable and I think, God, I, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And I knew it was because of the, uh, you know, the alcohol. How, yeah. how old were you chronologically at that point? I was 21. Oh, that's great. You know, and that's great. were drugs a part of your story? Yeah, they were yeah. cocaine. Mostly cocaine sped up the process of my alcoholism. <laughs> I mean, I was an alcohol. I'm an alcoholic. My grandpa died of alcoholism. Okay. Our family is alcoholics. They die of cirrhosis of the liver and, uh-huh. and acute alcoholism. Wow. The liver shot, you know, they, they, we have alcoholics in my family and I'm definitely an alcoholic for sure. But okay. cocaine sped it up and I, I was free basing and doing all this stuff. And so I think it, that sped up the process for me to hit bottom. But yeah. uh, I mean, I, and I dabbled in, you know, all the other stuff, you know, mushrooms and acid and, and all the recreational fun party type drugs, but alcohol was the greatest made me f- feel that, uh, that feeling like everything's going to be okay, you know, and take away the fear and give me the confidence. And, and that stopped working somewhere when I was about 21, I think. And, and then I just, finally realized I didn't want to live like that anymore, you know? Do you want to talk a little bit about some of your legal consequences? What would you run into? Oh, man, I had some uh, legal... You know, I was in a cocaine psychosis one night running from this guy that wasn't really there. Okay. And, I mean, running through the streets of of Belmont Shore. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I, I was jumping fences and every time I look back over my shoulder, this guy's chasing me with a gun, you know, mm -hmm. and I just was freaking out. So I ran down a, to, I thought, you know, if I can get where there's other people, I'll feel safer. Mm -hmm. So I ran out like second street in Belmont shore and I jumped in this lady's car while she was driving oh and she was just, you know, going slow five miles an hour or whatever. And I jumped in her car and I told her, I said, this guy's chasing me with a gun, you know, help me. And I had no shirt on, no shoes, and this guy showed up at my house and in, in my window, and I, I just ran out my back door. I figured I'd be safer running from him than I would be stuck in the house, and it was totally cocaine psychosis. Wow. And I'd been up for four or five days, and I just didn't. Anyways, I, I saw this guy. So the, the, there was a cop about three or four cars back that saw uh, me jump in this lady's car and they knew something was up and they pulled her over and I I just told them I said you know I'm hiring cocaine take me to jail really and you know I, I and you know if you ask them to do that they will <laughs> just so you know you know so I, I mean I went to jail so I had they, they, they arrested me for uh, I got charged with um, being under the uh, un uh, influence of uncontrolled substance, that kind of thing, and Jeez. and they reduced it. But but my legal stuff was all just drunken, you know, uh, fighting in public, drunk in public, you know, uh, uh, urinating in public, you know, all the stupid stuff. And then I had some cocaine stuff that got reduced. Yeah. Uh, and then I had a couple DUI. I had a DUI, and then I had another drunken or driving, some, some reckless driving. I don't know what it was, but yeah. but nothing ever really crazy. I never did any felony time. Yeah, but uh, but I got a lot that's of. That's all pretty crazy. You said nothing's pretty crazy. A lot of that's crazy. I man. mean, yeah, it's. I mean, but it's. You didn't go to federal penitentiary. I didn't go to the penitentiary. Yeah, I mean, um, but I mean, I, I had my 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 mom's brother, my uncle was a was a um, superior court judge, mm -hmm. and and he really did help me with mm -hmm. some stuff, you know, and, and just ma mainly like resources, you know, he had a good friend that was a, you know, uh, uh, an attorney that helped me with, with getting off of some things. And, you know, um, it could have been different, you know, if I didn't have the help of my uncle and did, did others ever confront you other loved ones or girlfriends or family or friends ever confront you about your drinking and start to ask you questions about your behavior or nobody ever say anything? To I you? think my parents did my, you know, at the time, my girlfriends were participating in, a lot of the the things that I was, especially with the cocaine, the cocaine years, which was like 81, 82, 83, that whole eighties, early eighties, it was easy to keep it all together, quote unquote, mm -hmm. <laughs> with cocaine around. Cause you never get too sloppy. And so they just were, you know, they'd participate. But I think my parents would say they would make comments and you know, when are you going to get your act together? Mm -hmm. You know, when are you going to get stop? You know, when are you going to get a job? Yeah. You know, did you ever have to go to Al-Anon as a result of your grandfather being an alcoholic and your dad being an alcoholic? Did your mom ever go to Al-Anon? Did you ever work on any of that stuff? Do you go now? Yeah, Al-Anon. Um, I don't go to Al-Anon now. I, I love the program of Al-Anon. I, re I really do. I'm a big fan of it. My mother started going to Al-Anon when uh, right before I got sober. Mm -hmm. and, for you or uh, for your? For, mainly for me. Really? <laughs> and um, I think she went uh, for a minute with, with re in regards to my dad in like the late 70s. But she really jumped in uh, strong Al-Anon when I got sober or right before I got sober in 84. Okay. And yeah, she was, she was very involved in Southern California. Yeah, my mom went to Al-Anon too. I started drinking heavy at 13 and she noticed it. And by the time I was 18 or 19, she was going to Al-Anon and... Um, I never talked to her too much about all that, but 
I know that she loves me with all of her heart and always has. And I think that she might've picked up some skills there, uh, to help her realize that she didn't cause my alcoholism. She couldn't cure my alcoholism and she couldn't control my mm-hmm. alcoholism, which gave her some freedom, but she was still worried about me. I remember coming home some nights, uh, you know, drunk and high and she'd be up waiting for me. And, uh, I could see the pain in her eyes and the fear in her eyes, but I was a young man and I was drunk and high and I, I cared, but I certainly wasn't going to stop. Like that was not negotiable. Like I was out there. God, having, I relate to that. Man, I remember that. I, have, I was having a good time. Um, I remember coming home. Um, my dad used to stay up real late at night and sit on the couch and watch TV and eat bluebell ice cream out of the actual half gallon container, which I don't agree with. I think you're supposed to take it out of that and put it in a bowl for sanitary purposes because I'm going to come th- and he would feed it to the dog too like he'd be sitting there with the dog wow he would, and the dog would be sitting there with him and yeah he would I don't take a, share that stuff he, my dad know. did he would take a bite of bluebell ice cream vanilla and then he would give the dog a bite and then he would take another bite so I always considered any ice cream in our house contaminated <laughs> and so I never ate it I never ate it and so I would come home hammered dude I'd come home and hammered and him and the dog him and the dog at the ice cream bowl would be sitting there watching TV and I would come in and he would want to talk He'd be like, how are you? Did you have fun? And I'm hammered, dude. And so I would like try to leave all the lights off in the room and I would go in there and talk to him, but I was wasted. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, dude, this is not what I was uh, wanting. I want to go to bed. I want to take a shower. I want to go upstairs and call my girlfriend. But I would sit there and talk to my dad drunk as a 17-year-old and an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old. And I just, (laughs) we never talked too much about all that, but that totally did go down like that. Um, did you ever go through a period of denial with your drinking as you were younger, kind of heading towards sobriety, like denial or not even? Yeah, I, to- I mean, it was I, just all denial for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't remember ever. I, I don't remember ever saying or even having the thought. Uh, maybe I need to take a look at this drinking. It was always something else. <laughs> Me either too. It was always something else. I, I mean, it's never a, thought that was you know, necessary. It's it's I, I you know I had a lot of trouble in Newport Beach. I always had bad luck in Newport Beach. I thought you know I just need to stop going to Newport Beach. You know, it has nothing to do with my drinking or the fact that I'm rolling through there with a. It's a high enforcement area, man. Yeah, you shouldn't have been hanging out over there. I shouldn't have been in that. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking for guys like you. Did you ever use any special techniques to try and control and enjoy your drinking? Any special techniques like beer only or cocaine only? Or oh, for sure. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, we could increase that list at infinitum for sure. Yeah. And I tried a bunch of stuff. And I mean, I, I could go on for five hours on just on just this question for yeah. sure. Which, But I think, um, I think my biggest deal was I could drink longer and not be sloppy or out of control by with just doing cocaine you know snorting cocaine allowed me to stay up longer and then of course i became very very intelligent in regards to (laughs) politics and and religion and my opinion and great commentary of the world and what we need to do to clean up the world. And as I'm sitting there at four in the morning doing blow drinking, I'm, I've got great ideas about what to do for uh-huh. our country. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
<laughs> Do you remember if it made you talk faster? Did it make you go faster? Yeah, oh yeah. I was like, I was, so, I just was, we were, I remember talking about, we were at a party one time. We always end up in the bathroom somewhere. <laughs> you always know, end up in a bathroom, you know, at, you know, somebody's house. I, I just I always knew these rich kids and they had these parents. Big were bathrooms. Big, giant houses and <laughs> park estates and these areas. And we go in the big bathrooms, like six of us in there. Yeah, and somebody totally. would be knocking on the door. I need to go to the bathroom. We'd be like, yeah, it's going to be a few minutes. Find another bathroom. You know, we were in there for an hour and a half. And I remember, I remember talking about Ronald Reagan uh-huh. and how Reagan is going to change the world and why and all this stuff. But I know nothing about politics, zero. <laughs> but I had, but I had this whole commentary about how Reagan was going to change everything. It was just stupid. Did you ever have a moment of clarity that sent you in to recovery? And if so, how did that affect you? Can you talk about a moment of clarity? Did you have that? Or oh, for really? sure. Yeah. For sure. Good. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, there's different types of moments of clarity, I would say. But I, I would say the first and biggest one was, and I think it was really a gift from, from God. I really do. Um, I came, I was, came to on that, on this floor, hardwood floor. And I was just, I don't remember anything. I was in a blackout and, and just rolled over. And that was the day I got sober. I mean, I rolled over from being in a, like a fetal position and got on my knees and I mean, it doesn't take much to get on your knees when you're on the ground already, you know? So I just rolled over onto my knees. I just said, I remember it so clearly too. I said, God, if you're there, please help me. You know, and I believe that to be the greatest prayer that alcoholics have. I mean, that's just my opinion. That was the, I mean, I love the third and the seventh and the, in the St. Francis prayer and the Lord's prayer and the serenity prayer. I, all those prayers are awesome. But the greatest one for me was God, if you're there, please help me. And that was a moment of clarity for sure. Wow. That's the exact three words that I said in the exact prayer that I said at 9.45 p.m. on October the 9th of 2000 in Carlsbad, California, on a street called Acacia. And I looked in the mirror and I said, God, help me. And I haven't had any drugs or alcohol since then. I haven't either, man. I haven't had any drugs or alcohol since I said that. Pretty amazing, huh? (laughs) Yeah, and and that's coming from a kid who didn't believe in God, did not like the Highland Park United Methodist Church, and thought that people that believe in God were suckers. I agreed 100%. That's what I thought. Well, you know what's funny? The irony of that is is that, you know, but I don't believe in God, I don't believe in this church and all this stuff, (laughs) was that now I believe that that was a total miracle given to me by God. Yeah, right. Like that was like the, you know, I, I couldn't go one, I couldn't go a half a day without do, drinking or doing drugs and all of a sudden I'm, I have no desire and the, the obsession was lifted. I agree with that a thousand percent and the thing that I noticed is that um, I noticed that it was a gift from God but only really in hindsight as I looked back over my shoulder the experiences of my life I was like okay yeah that was a gift from God but in the time and in the moment all it was was a, a prayer or a shot in the dark and a hope that yeah. he would help me when I said, God, please help me. So you just mentioned that you had said the prayer, God, help me, and you haven't had any drugs or alcohol since then. Can you tell me what happened over the next two or three days or week? Did you end up going to a treatment center or a hospital? Yeah, it was, um, I, you know, I'd already been to a treatment center and I'd already been to the therapist and I'd already, you know, done some things that didn't work. And mainly because I didn't have any desire to do anything they suggested to do. You know, whoever it was from a doctor to a therapist to a, you know, rehab person counselors, people in AA, whatever it was at that point. And I'll tell you, this is, this is the magic of the 12 step program, uh, any 12 step program, but this is the magic of what happens when people go and do service work and do what we suggest as a program of recovery from A to Z all the way to the beginning to the end. And that's that I remember this guy named Miles Evans Mm -hmm. and I remember him, he came to the treatment center that I was at 
and that was back in the summer of 84. And here we, here it's December 84, six months went by. Mm-hmm. I hadn't talked to him. I was out on the street doing crazy stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, you know, that guy really cared and, and, um, I'm going to get his number and, and call him. And so did he bring a, a an AA meeting in the treatment center? How'd you know? Uh, he, yeah, he came to speak. He, he came to speak with a couple other guys uh-huh. or he, uh, I don't really remember. I just know he came to the, the, uh, the treatment center. Mm-hmm. And so I got his number and I called him. I said, miles, it's Gary. Remember me? Yeah. I remember you. I said, I, I'm, I want to get sober. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Like, mm-hmm. just do me, tell me what to do. Yeah. And he says, okay, I'll pick you up at seven. And you know, I don't know what he said, we'll pick you up and we'll take you to a meeting. Uh-huh. And that was the beginning. That's what I did. So like the next day, uh, when I came to that next morning, I called him, he came and got me. I think it was that night. It was quick, mm-hmm. you know, and he was just blazing and he picked me up in this, you know, crazy 1972 mercury monarch or something you know lime green with just terrible car you know and mm-hmm. went off to this meeting and there you have it man what did you to an aa meeting he took you yeah he for, took me to an AA meeting. what yeah. did you think when he said that on the phone he's like yo come you take an aa meeting were you think were you like oh my god are you serious no, no way or i knew that was what you know here's the thing too i knew i had never done here's what saved me I knew I had never done what they did, what they, what they suggested in, in this program. Okay. So I figured it's, I never tried it. So uh-huh. maybe that'll work. <laughs> I never did it. I mean, I went to meetings and did some stuff and did the motions, you know, because I had to, because of a court thing or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, or my attorney said, you need to go to meetings, but I never did anything in the meeting. So I thought, you know what, maybe I can do this if I, if I do what they do. Mm-hmm. So when he came and said, we're going to go to a meeting, I was like, I don't care. Absolutely. Here's the thing too. I was totally willing hundred mm-hmm. percent. Now I had an opinion about things. I thought, <laughs> I thought why do we got to do that? I don't want to go do that. But mm-hmm. you know, I was like, I'm a, like a professional corner cutter, man. I, I know how to cut <laughs> corners, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, I, I, I just thought to myself, I'm going to do what these guys do. I'm going to do what he says. He's going to come get me. I'm going with him, period. Mm-hmm. And then that's just what started happening. And I, my willingness was strong because I don't want to live like that anymore. You know, this is a cornerstone, uh, key point for people because we're at the fork in your story where you could have gone left and keep using or you could have gone right and got sober can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what made you willing what put the gasoline in your engine to be in a yes sir mode or a position where you were willing to do what this guy told you to do what 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 was that you know i'm sure it was a an like an aggregate of things that were external consequences related to court dates and these guys that were after me for this in this drug robbery that I got in and and Mm -hmm. money that was owed and uh, parents that were disappointed and friends that were disappointed and I weighed 120 pounds I was unhealthy all those things that were external I'm sure played a part in Mm -hmm. me getting sober but what I really believe wholeheartedly is that it was something within me I didn't want to feel that way anymore I didn't want to live that way anymore. I didn't want to feel that way anymore. So I, that was what made me willing to go and do something different. Yeah. Was the internal, how I felt inside. I remember early in sobriety, there's so many sayings and colloquialisms that you can hear in the meetings. And a lot of them are printed on posters and put on the wall. And here's one that's not printed on a poster and not on the wall. But I heard somebody in a meeting early in my sobriety say, I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when that person said that, I was like, yeah, man, me too. And then I heard another thing 
Another time, somebody was talking about, and this is in the literature, they started talking about, I was confronted with a self-imposed crisis that I could no longer postpone or evade. Mm -hmm. I was like, yo, October the 9th, 9.45 p.m., Carlsbad, California, I was confronted with a self-imposed crisis via my drinking and drug use and general scumbag lifestyle that I could (laughs) no longer postpone or evade. And what would I have rather done at that particular fork in the road? I would have rather postponed it. Mm-hmm. or evaded it because that was my skill set. I didn't have a lot of good life skills, but one I did know was how to postpone stuff and put stuff off. I knew how to evade things, but I just painted myself into a corner with my choices and my decisions and, and ended up um, putting me in a position where I had to go um, back to Alcoholics Anonymous because that sobriety date I gave you of 10-10-2000 was not my original sobriety date. My original sobriety date was five seven eighty nine, and I'll talk about that at a later date on another podcast. But my my original sobriety date was five seven eighty nine, and the one I'm rolling with now is uh, October the tenth of two thousand. So, what did you think about the AA program when you first arrived, and what were your few, first few meetings like? Oh, you know, the first meeting I went to was in Newport Beach at the Newport Beach Alano Club, and and on Thirty Second Street, and it's still there, and it's still rock and roll. And you know, we I went in there, and it was lots of pretty people and pretty girls and cool dudes and you know and it was a very diverse group i mean they had a, they have a little canal that is like backs up on the back i was going to ask you a question i was going to ask you a question i go to a lot of meetings when i travel and i am 100 percent familiar with the club you're talking about mm-hmm. it's kind of in the canyon and as you pull into it there's like a creek bed or a canal that you have to cross across a bridge is that the no, same one no you're talking about the laguna canyon that's club. it laguna that's that's it, yeah. brother. I and that was, a, that's another, that's another, definitely another way. We were just there, uh, yeah. like a month and a half ago. At we, that club? Yeah. Uh, briefly, we took a guy to treatment mm-hmm. out there and just rolled up on that and tried to hit a meeting and, um, they didn't have any meetings, but they have, it's open. You can get a cup of coffee and that kind of thing. So yeah, the Laguna Canyon club. I got that confused between that and Newport. No, club. no, it's all good. So take me back to the Newport club. You, you go rolling in there your first two or three days, server. What was the Newport club like? And what did you experience there? Lots of energy, lots Lots of things going on, lots of, of what seemed to be clicks, you know, little people, little, you know, rolling around with each other and you can, mm-hmm. you know, lots of hugging and, and the energy, I will say this, the energy and the vibe in there was very positive yeah. and it was welcoming and it was, it was just like, you know what, uh, I, I can do this. Yeah. I mean, I didn't say that, but I, 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 th- I think I felt like I could do this. You Have know? you been back there recently? I haven't been back there in years, mm-hmm. decades. Uh, what did you think when you saw the word God on the wall at your first few recovery meetings? And what did you think about that? You know what? It didn't bother me at all. I, I wasn't afraid of that. I, I wasn't, um, and I, I didn't care if they said, and they did say, <laughs> they did say, you know, you, you really need to find a God. You need to find a power greater than yourself, you know, that you can get close to, to, to guide you through this and give you the confidence and, and um, the direction that you need to go forward. Mm-hmm. And um, I was cool with it. I didn't care. And I loved the idea, or it wasn't even the idea. It was, I loved the, the, the way it's set up in 12-step programs that give you your own choice, your own option of what God you can believe in. Because most places in the world, if they talk about God, there's one God. Yeah, it's not open to interpretation. No, it's not, and, and, and or your own concept. And so that was really cool, and I was okay with that. It's like it, I, I didn't feel like, um, you know what, if I don't believe in your God, mm-hmm. whatever God that is, then I'm going to go to hell or I'm going to drink again. I felt like, you know, 
Um, but the establishment of a higher power for me individually, which maybe that's a whole nother question you have later. I don't know, but I think one of the most important things that we can do and experience in this life of being sober is to establish some kind of a relationship with a power greater than ourselves and how that works and how that builds and grows, but how we can do that. And, um, just doing that in the beginning is huge. Is so, so huge. Let's talk about that real quick. Since we're here, why is that important to you? Why is that important to the listeners? To establish that relationship with the power of yourself, why, why, why would they care? Why should they care? Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and and I, I had to ask myself that in the beginning, and it's a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> a I, big well, question. you know, like we have a whole chapter in in a, in our big book called "We." <laughs> it's about agnostics, mm-hmm. and these are people that are like, you know, what I just don't believe. In, yeah. in that, you know, yeah. they're not atheists necessarily, but they just don't believe in it. But I was open and willing to believe in that because um, I just remember how defeated I was when I didn't have a higher power, mm-hmm. when I didn't have what I, what God, I was so defeated and miserable and yeah. lonely. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had no hope. So to establish a relationship with a higher power, I started to uh, feel like there was something out there guiding me mm-hmm. and I just had to be open-minded and willing to um, look for that and then accept it when it came you know I hope I answered that question no you did yeah no, doing, they were doing a great job here what did you think when you uh, read the 12 steps on the wall for the first few times like when you when you broke it down and you wrote the, read those 12 steps for the first times I I had problems with two words one I had a problem with the word God I was offended and the other problem I had a word problem with uh, was insanity I was mm-hmm. like, insanity. I was still in a little bit of denial. And so those are, those are the two things that freaked me out when I read the 12 steps for the first time on the wall. Did you have any issues or thoughts about what... A lot of people read them, they're like, wow, those all look good to me except number nine. Like, I'm definitely not going to do nine or 10, but I'll do the other two or the other 10. So I'll do like a 10-step program. Did you have any thoughts like that when you were reading? Yeah, them? Uh, that's interesting. I, I, I my. When I looked at all that, it looked like a lot. It just looked like a lot. <laughs> because it is a lot, I mean, man. <laughs> I mean, it just looked like I was reading it. I was like, wow, I write this on paper, and then I've got to go and, and you share, get a sponsor. <laughs> share it with some dude and God. And I don't know. You know, and then I got to go back. It just seemed like now, now, all these years later, I mean, you, you yeah. and I or I'm sure pretty close to the, <laughs> having the same opinion about it, but it's like mm-hmm. now when, I mean, you look at it, you break it all down. It's just like, mm-hmm. trust God, clean house, help others. It's like, that's really, if you break it all down, I just need to find a power greater than myself. Yeah. I need to go do this work. I need to take a look at myself and go back through my life and clean it up and make it right. Yeah. And then carry the message to other alcoholics and share this life um, of, of principle living, you know, with, with people. When I'm working with guys, to circle back to the question you just answered, when I'm working with guys and they're like, dude, why do I got to find a power greater than myself? So why do we got to do this God thing? Why do we got to do all this work? And I try to explain it to them real fast and real simple. I try to keep it simple with them. And I'm like, dude, you have to find a, a power greater than yourself, and I don't care what it is, to put between you and the drink. Because you are powerless. We already talked about that in earlier in the steps. You're powerless over alcohol. So if it's you and the drink... And there's nothing between you and that drink. The chances are you're probably going to drink because you're powerless already. And there's going to be nothing that you're going to be able to muster with your willpower or 
you know, whatever your little tricks are to stay away from that. At some point, you're going to make a decision to drink again. And what's going to happen is if we work these 12 steps and you have that profound personality change, God's going to roll into your situation and roll into your life and put himself between you and the drink. And what happens then is you're going to be placed in a position of neutrality. And what I mean by that is you're going to have stopped fighting anything or anyone, including alcohol, because by that time, sanity will have returned. Mm -hmm. And I try to make it real simple for these cats because they're coming out of the battlefield of alcoholism, active alcoholism and, and, and drug addiction. And I can see the look on their faces. A lot of times it looks like they got PTSD to me from the battlefield of alcoholism. They're, they're concussed. Yeah, they're concussed by <laughs> the falls and the car wrecks and just the, 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 the constant ingestion intake of, of alcohol and drugs. So they're, they're in a position where I try to keep it as simple as possible. When you got to these AA meetings, did they look and feel the way that you anticipated they were going to? Like, did you have any preconceived thoughts about what it was going to look like or feel like? You know, I'd gone to some meetings already before, you know, I, I totally surrendered. So I had an idea of what it was about, mm. but I knew they cared. That's the main thing. I knew they cared. There wasn't in the beginning when I went to, <laughs> when I went to meetings and, you know, back in, earlier that year or even in 83 for a minute because I have a DUI. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just thought these guys were, there was some MLM thing, you know, where if you get three people underneath you and then they get three people <laughs> underneath them, you know, you're just going to MLM you know, he's like, I want to make a million dollars or something. You know, there's some kind of scam here, you know, or if you stay around, you we're going to yeah. do a raffle for a yeah. toaster oven. I got to get two people to sign up. <laughs> I got to get two people to sign up. I just like, there's some stupid catch there you know or some yeah. dude lurking in the corner that yeah. had motives and you know i don't know <laughs> how but, many books do i gotta sell <laughs> it's like you know is this like you know but but it was but i hey you know what i trusted them and i knew their their heart was right so wow so let's talk about sponsorship a minute for a minute do, do you have an aa sponsor now and tell me about maybe when you had one back in the day and how you got one and how they helped you well, yeah, I definitely have one now, a guy named Paul. So, yeah, I got one now. He's awesome. I've had him for about 15 years. My first one was obviously just, I mean, the first one's just like, it, it's like it's like the first rock and roll song. I mean, <laughs> it's you'll never forget it. Uh -huh. But the, so the first sponsor was the guy that, you know, really helped me, a guy named Miles Evans. And he, he definitely wouldn't mind me saying his mm -hmm. first and last name. And he's in Long Beach. He's over 39 years now. And oh, he's that's cool. just a great guy. And, uh, he was one of those guys that just really, really lived in um, love and tolerance of others. Just a super big heart. But he's a servant. Like, that guy's a servant. I mean, he just is constantly doing stuff. So he really showed me the, the program and how to be of service. And he's the one that showed me. I didn't know this till later. He, he's the one that really showed me how to establish a relationship with higher power through affirmative action. What do you mean? Affirmative action, meaning going out and doing things for people and going and speaking and going and, and building up my self-esteem, uh -huh. which in turn established a stronger and stronger relationship with a higher power. I agree with that. And we give a lot of people that advice in early sobriety, but a lot of times they don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Like they don't want to do that. Yeah. And so my advice to them would be like, do it anyway. Yeah. Do it in spite of your best thoughts, because tell me right now where your best thoughts have gotten you. You know, you've got, For sure. you've gotten two months sober. You've listened to every piece of advice you've ever given yourself. You have three DWI convictions. You just got out of prison. You got 45 days sober. You've always listened to yourself. How about you stop listening to yourself and maybe listen to us and do some things you don't want to do. For example, going to 90 meetings in 90 days, for example, meeting us up here on Tuesday nights and going to 
Green Oaks Treatment Center and working with the new alcoholics there. And then after that, we usually go to Luby's or we go to Wyatt's Cafeteria. And I know that might not sound good to you, but why don't you avail yourself of us? Because I've got a long time sober, a lot more than 45 days, and I'm happy and comfortable mm-hmm. in my own skin almost all the time. And you don't appear to be that way. I don't try to talk down to him like that, but I try to straight talk no, him I like that. Sure. I try to straight talk him like that because early in my sobriety, I would soft sell the program and I would soft sell God and I would try to treat them with kid gloves and I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And I stopped soft selling God in the program of alcoholics and honest, my conception of God. Um, when I had about five or six years sober and I realized that we had really nothing else to offer anybody in alcoholics anonymous other than God. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a one-stop shop for that. There is no other solution. The entire purpose of the book of alcoholics anonymous is to allow you to find a power greater than yourself, which is with, you can solve all your problems. Yeah. We don't have a plan B. We don't have a special diet or exercise regimen or any kind of um, thank God for that special email list you can get <laughs> on, dude. It's like that's what we got. So if you're interested, that's what, that's what we want to move forward with. I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we're going to take a break. I'm going to do some announcements. Have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time in your sobriety, and how'd that work out for you? <laughs> I love the way you ask that, and you ask it so sincerely, like it's an actual serious question, which it is, and I get it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think I did. I, I think um, uh, <laughs> probably I was three, four years sober, and so yes, I did, and and I wouldn't even call it sponsoring myself. I would just, I would just be. I would say that I was just like floundering and, and I, what I, what happened was I just became angry. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Yeah. I just was angry. Yeah. And I was, I was running on working hard and acquiring things uh-huh. and trying to look good and trying to do things and, you know, that were fun. And so fun and my shiny cash and prizes lifestyle was first. <laughs> and then, my spiritual life and staying sober was like fifth or sixth. Mm-hmm. And what happens, I just got unhappy and angry. And I remember a buddy of mine said, Hey, there's going to be a sober dance and Johnny Harris is speaking and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Johnny Harris is speaking. I heard he's a legend and I, I don't really care about that guy, but I do. the sober dance could be cool. Uh, are there girls there? Mm-hmm. And so I went to the sober dance. And of course, I to go to the sober dance, you got to go to the, the, the speaker thing first or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I went and, of course, I heard exactly what I needed to hear because mm-hmm. I hadn't been really going to meetings. I was going to one meeting every couple of weeks and, you know, just kind of floundering in that little three to four year period of sobriety. And I went in there and I heard his story. And he says, man, he, I remember he said, you know, when I when I get off the beam, I get angry and I get mad at it. And I start taking it out on people. And I was like, it just made perfect sense. It's exactly what I was experiencing that time, my sobriety. And then he told me how to get out. He shared from the podium, he was sharing how to get out of it uh-huh. and what we do yeah. and follow directions and back to basics and do all this stuff. Yeah. And I started doing that and I was back on, you know, and I've been back since. So it's happened to me hundreds, if not thousands of time where I go into a random meeting and I hear exactly what I needed to hear. It's almost like they knew I was coming. They knew what I was struggling with. And they're like, yeah, we're talking about there steps. He is. Yeah, There's there Mike. He is. I'll go in there and I'll be tripping on step six. And they'll be like, we're talking about step six. And I'm like, for an hour. All right. All right on. I'm like, let's do it. All right. I'm going to read a few announcements real quick. And the first question I'm going to hit you with coming out of this break is, has the desire to drink or to use uh, again ever returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? Okay. So here comes a few announcements. I want to remind you that our website, SoberShares.com, is ready for you to explore. You can listen to all of our episodes. 
join our email list, or leave a voicemail that I may play on a later episode of Sober Shares. You can access all of our social media platforms on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email all comments and suggestions to mike at sobershares.com if you want to hit me up directly. You can also make a financial donation to help us cover our monthly operating expenses by clicking the PayPal donate button on our website and use a debit or a credit card. It will take less than two minutes. You can also send a direct donation to us via PayPal by logging into PayPal and sending it to our email address, which is mike at sobershares.com. I want to thank our listeners who have made a financial donation to help us move this project forward and all of our listeners to help Sober Shares grow. As a quick note on the site, I also want to mention that we went over 1.3K listeners, which is over 1,300 listens in the first eight weeks of our um, life and existence here on the internet world and the platforms that um, distribute and share all the podcasts. So I want to thank everybody for that. I'm super excited about that. Our audience continues to grow daily. Thank you to you. Here is a list of the couple of the new countries we have added in the last few days. I want to say hi to all of our new friends and listeners in Poland, Guam, Lithuania, and the Ukraine. And I want to thank all of our guests and everyone who has helped us get this podcast into production mode. I also want to assure you that I take this show seriously and I value your time and attention as a listener. Our singular focus at SoberShares is to make your listening experience the best it can be. Our guiding light here is to help people. Um, I want to read some listener feedback, if you guys don't mind. This is a new thing we're doing here on the podcast. I've never led, read listener feedback yet, but I want to give a special shout-out to a listener named Max Allen, and he gave me permission to use his first and last name. Here's a text message he sent me the other day. Hey, Mike, my name is Max Allen, and I go to the Freedom Hope and uh, Freedom and Hope Group in Grapevine, Texas. Ha ha. I just finished the podcast with Dan P, and it was really good, man. I like the Q&A style interview and mostly listen to speaker tapes, but I will definitely tune in. Keep up the good work. So special thanks to Max Allen. Another thing he did for us is he submitted a new question uh, for the podcast, which we're going to be hitting here uh, in a little bit. It was a really cool, thoughtful question from Max Allen that I'm going to be reading uh, to Gary here in a little bit. This is another listener feedback we received from a listener in, um, well, I'll just say the Northeast of America, the Northeast United States. His name is Seth. I wanted to let you know that I went from 260 pounds to 185 pounds, and I realized I'm a food addict. It doesn't sound as dangerous as the other kinds of addictions like alcohol and drugs, so I ignored it for a very long time. I was personally moved by your podcast and your honesty. It will help me make better decisions and to battle my own demons. Thanks again. So special shout out, much love to Seth. We also got a special um, email uh, from Shannon W. She did not give me permission to use her last name, so I'm just going to use her first initial, but I think she knows who she is, Shannon W. Hi, Mike. Love your new podcast. I just listened to Rachel Stacy, and I like this format. The question asking just at the point I have questions is right on time, and I'm really enjoying the show. So please keep giving us more episodes. And we will do that for you, Shannon W. Much love and respect to you for being a special one of our members in the audience. Um, I wanted to get back to Gary and ask him if he's ever had a desire to drink or use use again since he's been sober. And if so, what have you done about it? I haven't had any any um, desires to uh, drink or use. I haven't had any, any anything. No. Uh, That's amazing. For as hard as you were going there at the end, it never came back. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it, it's 
I mean, I really do. I don't use the word miracle mm -hmm. very much in, in my life, but I do believe that that really was in, in, in a way, you know, uh, what I mean, what about I, dr drunk dreams? Have you ever had any drunk dreams? You know? No, but I had some, uh, I had some cocaine dreams in that first five, six years. I, I, uh, I, I woke up feeling like I relapsed, mm -hmm. which is a bummer. Totally a bummer. A bummer. It's like, Especially when you have a few years under your belt. You're yeah, like, you're like, oh, oh my God. And then I realized it was, it was just a dream and I got to keep my sobriety. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like I didn't relapse. So, but I haven't had anything. I, I really do believe God took away the, the obsession to drink and use, you know. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober? And what have you done to cope with uh, anxiety or depression and sobriety? I haven't suffered from depression, uh, but I've, I'm, I've had... I've had some anxiety for sure. And I think what I usually do is try and connect with people and, and um, make a phone call, you know, uh, just reach out to other people, uh, turn my thoughts to people like those I can help. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I might get quiet, you know, anxiety, you know, the quieting of the mind and, and really just getting still and stopping, mm -hmm. just stopping. Anxiety for me is related to fear about things I need to be doing or things I need to take care of or work or it's all this projection mm -hmm. and for me. And so it's, it's, it's actually just saying, you know what, it's time to stop. Yeah. Get quiet, get back to basics, get real. Everything can wait. Mm -hmm. Everything can wait <laughs> and it all can wait. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I've done with anxiety. Yeah, uh, I became a bit of a task mask master in early sobriety, and I kind of realized that. And then there's a part in the literature that talks about this that we felt like that we could we we could rest satisfaction from the world if we could only manage well. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, at a certain point, about three, four, five years sober, that I was anxious and, and super freaked out because I was trying to super manage, over manage and delegate everything in my life. And then I realized, you know what, Mike, you need to just relax, realize that God loves you. He's going to take care of you. Anything we don't get done today can get done tomorrow. Uh, make sure you make time for meetings. Uh, make sure you're eating a healthy diet. Uh, go to a meeting when you want to and when you don't want to, and everything's going to be okay. And I slowly was able to chip away at my anxiety. And, but I know everybody travels in a different lane, and there, and I've never lived in anybody else's body. So I do want to acknowledge anxiety and depression as a real thing. And, for um, sure. Yeah, for sure. And if you're on medication for it uh, via doctor, then continue to go down that road until... No. You know, I just want to say something real quick about I have no no experience at all with depression. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I heard, um, I really like um, Bill Wilson, I think, suffered from depression. Yeah. You know, and one of the things he said was uh, to do would, was, was just connection with people. Yeah. If you can have connection with people, it's just a great... Because I think from what I've seen with the people that are close to me that have had suffered from depression is that they, you don't want to be around people. You just, you know, it's about yeah. isolation and hiding. And, and so I think uh, connecting with others is, uh, I think, can be probably really helpful. Yeah, I agree. That's been my experiences, too, is, is when we stick to ourselves and hide in our houses, we can overthink and overanalyze things and just choose not to go out and choose not to interface and I'm only 51 years old, but I've been paying attention for 51 years and I see things. And one thing that I've noticed, and I don't know if this has, has a, a, let me just say it. I don't know. You decide if it makes sense. 
I've noticed a lot of people in my life that have, I'll just say a lot of money that are wealthy, that don't have to work and can do whatever they want to all day, every day. I've noticed that a lot of those guys get into trouble because mm-hmm. they have time to sit at their house and go out or not go out. And a lot of them choose to just start to hang out at the house and, and, you know, and then depression comes and then they really don't want to leave their house. And then the anxiety comes and they really don't want to leave their house. And I, but I'm calling on them. I'm checking on them. I'm emailing. Them, I'm trying to dynamite their asses out of their house to get them to go to lunch with me. <laughs> just as simple as go to lunch with me. I man. know. I know. And I'm like, dude, I'm just not, I never say this to them, but I'm, ne- I'm like, dude, I don't know if the, the wealth is, is helping your, your situation. Right. You know, I don't have a lot of wealth, Mike, and yeah. I'm in the same situation as those guys. Yeah. Poor people, poor people have to get up and go out and interface and work and pay the bills. No, these, I get it. Yeah. All these wealthy dudes, they used to be chilling at their house. Um, it's, it can be a blessing too. You know, money can be a sure. blessing too, but it can also be a curse. Biggie Smalls was the first one to, to tell me about that. Um, so Damn. super, super huge question. Next one here. Where, where are you at with God today? Oh, wow. You know, uh, that's a great question. I'm, I, I feel, uh, I feel pretty good. I'm, I'm constantly constantly thinking about that you know what would god have me do Mm -hmm. and what would god have me be so it's like how would he have me be and what would he have me do and uh i think the ability to it's almost like god gives me the gift to slow down and stop and say god what do you want me to do now or what am I supposed to be? Or what am I supposed to, you know, do? And then he gives me the answer. So he gives me the ability and the willingness to even ask him for help. And then he gives me the answer. So it's like, I don't think I would have the ability to ask for help if it wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. So he gives me that. He gives me this willingness to say, hey, I need your help. One more time. Number 7678000000000 You know, it's like, how many times have I asked for help? And recently when I had COVID, I, without getting into that too much, but I mean, I'll tell you what, there's praying all the time. There's thinking of God all the time. And then there's just the really deep, God help me. Kind of like when we got sober mm-hmm. and I had, I had gotten vaccinated mm-hmm. and I got vaccinated when I had COVID and I didn't know I had COVID. What does that do? Is that, that bad to it's do? It's really bad. Yeah, bad it's really bad. That. It's, like, it's like you got a triple dose of COVID now. Oh, no. So, I mean, I had the variant or I had COVID. And not to go down, I, I promise no, not to go down the no, rabbit go hole with, with COVID stuff. But Talk about whatever it, you wanted to talk about. You know, but it's, it relates to the, what, you're, what you're asking. And so, I, you know, I, I was feeling some symptoms. I didn't think it was much because I'd felt that before and I got tested. It was negative. I thought, you know, I'm going to go for it and just get this vaccine. So this is like a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost yeah, a little like a month ago, mm. and uh, it and I got I got vaccinated and I don't I had had the COVID. And I, a couple days later, I went and got tested. And I was, and I'll tell you what I was like. I mean, I was super super sick, and it, I wasn't getting any better. And I was in bed for ten days. Wow, eleven days. Did you and have there trouble times breathing? I had terrible, could not breathe. That was the worst symptom. That's got to be scary. I just couldn't breathe, and and fortunately, my sister's an, a nurse, and she's works in a, in a hospital and has been in the COVID unit working with the COVID patients for since COVID started. And my, my doctor too. They said, you know, you just need to make sure your oxygen, your blood oxygen levels are, are good. You know, so yeah. I kept testing them with my little oximeter, and it was always 95, 96, 97, oh, that's good. which is cool. 
but they said the kids below 90, 89, 88, you need to get your butt to the you know hospital. Mm. And but I just couldn't breathe, and so every time I catch a breath, it would be through coughing. Oh, and wow. then I just didn't. Then I couldn't sleep, and I just and I was miserable. I had all the symptoms, you know. And I mean, I just was, and it was, I didn't think it was going to end. And finally, after, you know, eight, nine, 10 days, I was like, it woke up in the middle of the night. I was like, God, tell me, give me a sign of when it's going to end. You know, please help me. Just, and I just was like this yearning, desperate prayer. I'm dying over you here. Know, I'm dying over here. But my relationship, I always knew, I said, Dude, this is going to pass. This is going to pass. And I think the, um, the gift of being able to tell myself in situations that aren't so good like that one and many 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 others is that that gift of of being able to being able to say to myself and believe that it's all going to be okay this is going to pass and it's all good like that's the greatest thing is because back in times of in my life or when i was in, held at gunpoint or you know in jail or whatever it was I didn't think it was going to be okay. And so to believe that it's all going to be okay and that God really, God really has me, you know, God really has me covered, you know, um, is the greatest thing we can have. I mean, I just can't, I just can't process and run all this by myself. Mm -hmm. You know, that sounds like an unshakable foundation of faith and what a gift. Yeah. What a gift. Can we shift gears for a second? It's not only shifting gears. It's just changing lanes. Let's change lanes, but stay in the same highway and talk about gardening for a moment. I know that you're into, <laughs> I know you have a lovely wife. I know that you have a lovely home and I know that you guys garden. So can you talk a little bit about gardening and how that relates to God and your spirituality and your wife? And have you always loved gardening or have you come to love it in sobriety? Let's talk about your green thumb. Let's talk about that. Wow, Mike, that's so cool that you would even ask that. And, I'll, and so a part of me, my little, and I don't know if it's ego or what it, what it is, or, or just um, this, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, um, image or whatever, but still to talk about gardening as a man still feels <laughs> like it's just not, you're just not that cool, bro. You know, it's like, like well, you maybe you are. I haven't seen your garden like, yet. Like Marlon Brando in the wild one and James Dean uh -huh. and Steve McQueen, you know, they, they, they're not talking about gardening, you know, they're racing motorcycles and being cool and right, smoking cigarettes, you know? So, I mean, it's, it would, it's almost like if you said, Gary, so tell me about motorcycles. Can you do a wheelie on a motorcycle? You know, but you know the truth is I don't really care anymore. It's like right. I'm at a point where it's like, here's the deal. Yeah, gardening yeah. is uh, is is magic. It's magic, and here's why for me. We've we've got a lot of stuff growing, and number one, it's so therapeutic. I mean, it's super therapeutic to get out in the garden and work on things and pull weeds and trim some stuff and top some flowers and and deadhead some geraniums and whatever the hell else there's tons of stuff to do and it's it's ever going you know it, it it's um it's always kind of a work in progress so it never really you never really get finished so you come to be okay with um uh, this unfinished thing yeah being like a work in progress it's like life it's yeah. like you're never finished until you die <laughs> so i'm out there and here's the, what happens you're out there in the garden and I'm by myself and Christy's gone and, and sometimes we work together and we work together pretty well now. And we've got things that attract 
four or five different bees and wasps and hummingbirds and all this stuff. And they're all on the same, they're all together out there trying to get all this food from all the, the flowers and stuff. Yeah. You know, the pollen and to, and to watch all that is a trip. It's like, they all seem to just get along fine. And I learned so much from the garden. Like we got, in, and I'm, I, I'll, I could go on forever, so please cut me off. No, let's go. It's awesome. I I mean, what's a trip is, is we've got these vines too. We've got passion flower vines, so they can, they reseed themselves like so much of the stuff that we do, Mm -hmm. that we have. They they reseed themselves, so they they reseed themselves in random areas. And so these passion vines go up through our zinnias and our flocks and our our, uh, other stuff that we got. I'm thinking, you know, I got to get that out of there. Mm-hmm. I got to get that out of there because it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, uh, to strangle all the other stuff. Uh-huh. I got to get that out of there. And I see it and I, and I put it off and I don't do it. I got to get that out of there. I got to get that out of there. And what happens is I don't get it out of there. Like I put it off, but that vine yeah. doesn't strangle the other flowers. They learn how to yeah. bloom together. Uh-huh. And it's really interesting how people, I think of people like, they learn, even though they don't might not get along, and they're trying to strangle each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they learn how to get along, and they learn how to live. And so, all these things that I thought were going to strangle each other, it, they're they're all blooming. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but, but gardening is super magic, man. It's 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 super therapeutic, and I learned how to do it. I started doing it a long time ago as a kind of gardening and doing stuff for people in California when I was younger. I had a little landscape business. I did it for a, a living, and I. Um, and then uh, I always did it for other people, you know. So now here we are. We live, you know, in, a, in Terrell, Texas, and we, we got a, a lot of room, you know. And, and it, we're in town, but there's it's kind of a – there's a lot to do, you know. So mm-hmm. it's really magical, man. I would love it. I've got a beautiful um, – I've got a – anyways, I'll just say I have a nice backyard. And I've got a water feature back there, and I've got a bunch of plants. And um, a lot of times I'll be out there – um, and I'll be pulling weeds and I'll be thinking, hmm, this is like a metaphor for my life. And these weeds represent my character defects. <laughs> and uh, that's what I think when I'm out there. How many it's, weeds do you have? Yeah, man. so I'm pulling all these weeds out and I was like, this is my gluttony. This is my self-centeredness. This is my um, like lust, you know. This is my sloth. This is my envy. This is my pride. And I go out there and I work on them and I pull them and then I go back like a week later and they're back. Mm-hmm. And I have to do it again. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, this is really like a metaphor. I for like that. That's cool. I'm like, this is really like a metaphor for my sobriety. And I have two choices. I can either address the weeds and pull them and it looks good. Or I can not address the weeds and not pull them and it looks like crap. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not trying to have a crappy looking backyard. So I'm trying to stay in six and seven. I'm trying to pull my weeds. I'm trying to have a nice garden. That's how I think about it. Um, I bought some plants the other day as a hanging pot. And I just like the pretty small pink little flowers in it. And I did not know that hummingbirds were going to trip out on that basket, hanging basket. So I hung it outside my back back door. And I walked outside the other day in the morning early, like 630 in the morning. Sun was just coming up. And I step out in the backyard and I hear this. Zzz, and I look about three feet to my left and there's four hummingbirds. Just, wow. Yeah. Like three feet away from my head, just sitting there getting it down with this, On that new, hanging yeah, with yeah. this new hanging basket. I don't know what the name of the plan is. I don't know nothing. I just know that I bought it because I thought it looked pretty and they really liked it. And I couldn't believe it. 
Um, and then another thing, I had some some gardening going on in the backyard where I was growing tomatoes and squash and vine and jalapenos, all this other stuff. And um, I was excited about it. And I was watching it grow and I was thinking about God and I was grateful for the food, this, that, and the other. And then one day we got there and it's pretty much all been destroyed by a squirrel or squirrels. Mm-hmm. And they ate it all. And my 11-year-old son came out and he looked at the ground and he's like, what happened to all the tomatoes and the squashes and all that? And I go, man, them squirrels, they must have got it all last night. He looked at me. He goes, well, I guess they needed it more than we did. Yeah. They needed to eat that food instead yeah. of us because we can go to a restaurant, Daddy. Yeah, we have a total. We have a total. Christy's super hardcore. My wife, oh, Christy, no. she's hardcore with no harm farms. Like, like it's no <laughs> harm. So we don't spray anything. Yeah. And any bug, anything that's alive, mm-hmm. we, Christy especially, but we really believe that it's there for a reason. Yeah. It's there. And some of it can take, can eat. Look, grasshoppers really can do some damage. I mean, they can mow down some stuff. But I'll tell you this. Yeah. What I've, what I've come to believe is, is if you ask somebody what makes a plant grow. Mm-hmm. What makes something grow? And they go, well, the sun, and you got to water it. Mm-hmm. Now, what I found is, is it's crucial, and it's really metaphorical for me in my life, and that's what really makes stuff grow, in, in my experience, like the last five years, is, is the soil, mm-hmm. the right soil. Yeah. Because that's the foundation. That's where the roots are starting. That's where the root ball forms. Okay. And so the roots of a plant and what they're growing in is super vital sun and water for sure. But man, if, if, if you, so having that right soil, when you start out, when you're planting something is, is, is like us first getting sober, having a strong foundation so we can then grow from that and bloom and, and, uh, kind of flourish you know i agree with that yeah i took the first year of my sobriety and i thought about it metaphorically exactly like you're talking about i thought to myself and i I don't know if my sponsor told me or i thought to myself i think my sponsor told me this he's like hey mike i want you to work real hard this first year and i want you to take it real seriously because you're a young dude you're 30 years i got sober at 30 he's like you're a 30 year old dude and you're probably gonna live till 70 or 80 or 90 so that's like another long time it's like another 40 50 60 years so what we're gonna need you to do is I need you to work real hard this first year and build a super strong foundation by going to meetings, working the steps, helping others, and get enmeshed in sobriety. Build a super strong foundation. And then what we'll do for the next 40 or 50, 60 years of your life is on that foundation, we will build the scaffolding and the framework of the house of the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And you're, and it's not going to be built on a crappy foundation. It's going to be built on a good foundation. We're going to build this next year. And metaphorically speaking, your life will rest. The framework for your life will rest upon that. And I listened to him. Wow. And I did exactly what that dude said because I was in a yes, sir mode and I did everything he told me to do. I read what he told me to read. I prayed how he told me to pray. I went to the meetings he told me to go to and I did everything that he said. And I was able to build an unshakable faith and an unshakable foundation that first year. And then the rest of my life has rested upon that foundation. And uh, it's worked out really, really. really Yeah, I love that. Um, so let's switch gears and talk about your wife for a minute, if we could, just for a minute, because I have <laughs> mad respect to her. So hi, hi, Christy. If she's going to be listening to this, we both love you. We both respect you. And we're so excited to maybe someday, I don't know, fingers crossed, maybe get you on here as a guest. Um, I don't know if she will come or not, but the invitation is always there and open. Um, she's one of my AA heroes and she's one of wow. my, yeah, she's one of my AA heroes and mentors. And in my own personal experience, it doesn't say this in the literature, but I feel like that 
uh, it's a little semi-controversial. I feel like for me that men should be sponsored by men and women should be sponsored by women. And the reason I say that is so I can say this. If I was a girl, I would ask your wife to sponsor me. Yeah. Right I, would, I would want you. That's how much love and respect I got for her. I would ask her to sponsor me because it looks to me like, and I could be wrong, but appearances to me are, she looks like she's comfortable in, in her own skin almost all the time. She appears to be full of love and light and forgiveness and uh, just smart. She just seems smart to me, man. Yeah. And she has a lot of experience. And not only has she had a lot of experience, we've all had a lot of experience, but she's like matriculated through the experience of that life, thought about it, prayed on it. And then he's using that information as gasoline and her spiritual engine to move forward and live better, mm -hmm. live in a better way moving forward. So is there anything you want to say to your wife real quick? Any special shout outs you got for her? <laughs> well, that was, that was, that, I, I, I don't even think I can say it any better than you did. I mean, she's filled with wisdom for sure. She's very, very wise. Um, you know, uh, I've been sponsoring her for about 10 years now and she's, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's a good one. No, she's just, uh, you got to figure it out. I'll tell you what, that everything you said, I won't repeat, but everything you said is totally true. Um, She's she's really a rare one, a rare one for sure, a rare human. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's sober in the program that we're sober in. Yeah, she's sober too. Sober twenty nine years this November, so she'll be she's twenty eight years sober. How'd y'all meet? Did you meet? We met it? at a meeting. We met really? in, in uh, the program. Yeah. Okay. In ninety or in, um, two ninety two thousand six, uh -huh. and we went to lunch. After the meeting, we, I'd, I'd known her a little bit. We went to lunch after a meeting. Yeah. And we've been together ever since that lunch. Oh, really? <laughs> that was it. And, you know, <laughs> we were like, oh, this is kind of going too fast. And all our normal kind of thought processes were like, uh -huh. this doesn't, this, this is, has the ingredients to burn out quick, you know, because we yeah. were, but we've been together ever since and we're super happy. But she's, I'll, I'll say one thing about her her life is that she reads more books than I know than anybody I know. Okay. And she has, uh, the most robust and, um, diverse and colorful morning regimen than anything I've ever seen. Wow. And that's expiring to you. It like puts uh, on it, a good, it's, yeah, it's like an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. She does gratitude lists with people in the program, reads a lot, meditates, I mean, does, I mean, she does meditations that are, um, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, those kinds of things. So she's, her morning stuff is, is off the chain, you know? And so I got a lot of respect for her with that, but how she treats and talks to other women yeah. on the phone. I never really know who it is or what they're talking about, but I can sometimes overhear things that she says. That's really inspiring. Yeah. And she's just a cool girl. I'm super grateful. Wow. You know. And I know she has boundaries too, from what I've heard. She has some, some good boundaries with, with newcomers as far as what's, you know, with love and compassion, but you know, well, she does for sure. Boundaries. Like what's, you, you, there's some things that are expected of you. If you're going to call me your sponsor, you have to do some things. Yeah. I would say that for sure. I don't think she has a lot of boundaries when it comes to the men she chooses, but I got to learn which one yeah. of those is. Let's which, try this. <laughs> one of these makes that here. Let's see. You got to do a little drum let's beat. Let's try it. Let's try it. Okay. Let me turn it up. No, that ain't it. Let's That's see. not it. We got to find that bump, bump, bump. Hold on. <laughs> no, let's see what this is. Let's try it. No, that ain't it. That's it. That's it. You got to remember that. <laughs> so she doesn't have any boundaries with she her. She has no boundaries she with men. 
There you go. There you go, baby. It's the first time we've used that one. I'm gonna remember that one. I gotta write a little note. No, she's just she's uh, she's cool. Yeah, thanks for all the the kind words for her. And she's she's uh, she, I'm very grateful that she's my wife. So for yeah, sure, she's the best. Have you? Uh, do you have any AA heroes or mentors? And if so, why are they important to you? Yeah, I do for sure. Chuck Chamberlain is probably my first one. Um, I never even met him. He got, he died in uh, December of '84 the same month and, and year I got sober. Mm-hmm. So when I heard Chuck Chamberlain, his son was Richard Chamberlain and, and he's got a, you know, Chamberlain has got the family, but Chuck was, was, um, you know, also lived in Laguna beach, died in Laguna beach. I got a history there with my uncle and family and I, you know, but more importantly than anything is what he shared, what he shares in it when he talks. And I just started listening to that. And I was, I was kind of having a tough time. I was in Japan with my buddy and I was two and a half years sober and I was kind of just like feeling apart from and not a part of. Uh-huh. And my mom sent me, I called my mom and said, you know, mom, I'm just like, she goes, how's Tokyo? And I don't, we went there to work and she goes, uh, I said, it's good. She sent me a, an international uh, AA directory. Oh, wow. And, and with that was a book that had just come out called uh, a new pair of glasses and it was this you know chuck chamberlain's story in a book and i grinded through that in you know like a day and a half and read it and it just totally changed my whole attitude so chuck chamberlain has always been a really big mentor to me um a guy named uh a speaker that i never met also (laughs) never met these guys but you know um uh God, he's just drawing a blank on his name. I, you know, I love the energy of a lot of the speakers, but I think... Um, I like Sandy Beach. I don't know if you've Sandy, Sandy Beach. Sandy Beach, for sure. Never yeah. met him. Oh, I, no, I did see him speak live in person, but I didn't meet him. He's amazing. Norm he Alpe. Norm Alpe is the other one I was going to say. Norm Alpe. Uh-huh. Uh, he, was, he was a mentor uh, for me. He, got, he, he, he died in, I think, 82. Yeah. But he was a guy who's, you know, just I just related to his story, but... Any of these guys that continue to do what you and I are doing now mm-hmm. and, and uh, look up to that came before us. And, and some people just have a gift for carrying a message mm-hmm. through their speaking. Yeah. I don't know what that is. They just have the ability to carry a message that yeah. goes deeper than some yeah. people, you know. Yeah, I think that they're needed and uh, just to move the message along. You know, not everybody has the same set of skill sets, you know, so everybody's set up differently to, to carry the message forward. Uh, what has been your toughest challenge in sobriety and how have the 12 steps helped you with that challenge? Mm. <laughs> that's a big question. Damn. I'm asking some big ones this morning. No, it's good. That's yeah. a, that's that. I think, uh, I think the biggest challenge. <laughs> wow. You know, I don't, I don't feel like I, I have a, I don't feel like I have a ton of challenges. I, I think one of my biggest challenges is, is to um, be content with managing and keeping money. I, I've, I've, somewhere along the way, somebody <laughs> said to me, Gary, you have cash. You need to do something with it. Yeah. You need to spend it and blow it or do stuff with it. Yeah. And sometimes what I've found now that I'm a little bit older is, you know, some of the things you can do with money is keep it mm-hmm. and save it and hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And man, I, when I was young, I don't know what it was when it, from a lot of it was the cocaine years when I was dealing cocaine. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I, 
you know, as a drug dealer, it's like easy come, easy go. I'm not saving money. I'm not putting my money into a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so I, I had to learn how to do that. That's been challenging for me is just to, is to be right with money. Yeah, my sponsor, Scott D, talks a lot about that to not only me, but I hear him talking to the other guys he sponsors, and he talks about money. Yeah, I've he's talked a, to him about money before. Yeah, he's yeah. Talk, he's 31 years sober, and he's yeah. got some thoughts on money and, 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 and yeah. whose money it is and how we're supposed to be spending it yeah. and tithing and giving away. And it's not his money, it's God's money. It took him until 20-something years to figure that out. And I was just like... Yeah, and tithing, giving money back and doing stuff. And if yeah. you give a certain amount of money, it'll come back tenfold, which which I, I, I totally believe. He talks to me about where he spends and donates his money and why, you know? And um, I won't share it here. It's his story to tell, but he talks to me about some of his causes and why he's down for them and why he gives to them. And Mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, money is a a real piece of business that we can definitely learn from. Uh, Why is going to meetings important? (sighs) Yeah, wow. You know, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, is, you know, is connection and um, the fellowship part of the program, but I really think the importance of the meetings is to meet up so we can help each other to follow the directions and do what's outlined in the big book, you know, and that's, I mean, the big, the meetings is just really a place to come to learn what we're supposed to do, you know, and and that's why I always love the times when I, when I, when you're, you know, doing your meeting, you know, you, you, always come prepared and have a great topic and it's always out of our literature, you know, which is, which is great. I mean, our, our, our thinking is very finite as, as alcoholics and humans in general. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's just limited. And so when you bring this literature in there, now it says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Then that's the action. So going to meetings and high fives and where are we going for lunch? And hey, dude, that's cool, man. How was your trip and all that? And I get it. And it's fellowship and it's cool. But I really I think the importance of going to meetings is to is to connect so we can help each other learn what we're going to go do next based on what the book says. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah, it works. It works for me. There's so many different reasons to go to meetings. You hit a few of them for sure right there. There's so many different, just to get out of ourselves, man. Cause yeah. there's days I wake up and I'm thinking about me first thought. And I love noon meetings. There's several different types of meetings. There's early morning, there's midday, there's six o'clock, there's eight o'clock, there's midnights, uh, candlelights, there's all different types, but my flow, I enjoy noon meetings. So sometimes I'll wake up and I'll be thinking about myself straight up as soon as I become conscious and wake up and I don't want to be that way but it's just kind of how it goes down sometimes even though I pray and meditate I still think about myself a lot and then I get to that noon meeting and I'm able to for an hour if I can focus and pay attention and listen I can think about somebody or something else other than me and that usually breaks my cycle of selfishness and self-centeredness and I get into what's going on with other people and that sets me free yeah, it sets me free. I want to give a special shout out to Max Allen again, one of our big time listeners out there. Super, super big love to Max Allen. He sent in a, a question that I teased earlier in the podcast, and I'm going to ask ask it now. Uh, what was your single most profound experience within the step work? Yeah, I saw that. I think that's the single most well, profound or an example of the, yeah. give us an, an example of a profound experience within the framework of working the steps. If you can. Yeah, no problem. I think that. experiencing the feeling of freedom 
and having the weight taken off of me yeah. by working the eighth and ninth step. Okay. Primarily the ninth step. You're the first person to talk about the eighth and the ninth step on this podcast. So you're covering uh, uncharted territory on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, so let me read those real quick. Let's, let's let me read. Yeah, the right on. Step. Right on. Okay, eight step. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine made direct amends to such people, except uh, wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So let's talk about eight nine for a minute. Yeah. So you know, uh, I mean. Before I even talk about that, I, I also want to say that I think, you know, profound experiences with the steps is 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 either the same as the level of you know if it's nine or a ten or a gauge. I mean, see, working with other people and is is hard as that can be sometimes and challenging. Or I don't want to do it. I'd rather go home and eat cookies and watch TV than go take some guy to a meeting. You know, that's. I mean that. But when I you know, and I go, God, you know what? And then I, then I always process and go, they would have done it for me. I need to take this guy. So I take the guy. I remember back, Miles Evans took me to the meeting. He didn't have to. Right. And so that, so I go, so, but watching people get sober and watch the light come on, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's huge for me. So that's a big one. But I think but as far as eight, nine goes, what happens is I did so many things to hurt other people in my life. And a lot of it was just self-centered and selfish thinking and actions, you know, based on, I said, I'd come by, I never did. I told you I'd call you, I never did. Mom, I'll be home by six like you wanted me to be. When I was 13, I never did. I mean, just on and on and on and on of hurting people. So with the process of cleaning that up and making that list of the people I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them, when I made the direct amends and I cleared up. It was like, I got a clean slate now. And that's where the freedom comes and the happiness and the joy. Now I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. I'm current. That's, uh, I don't, and that's right when the promises happen Mm -hmm. really for, as laid out in our big book, but also in my experience, that's, that's when they started. I got to know a new happiness and a new freedom. I agree. I feel like I was reborn at that point. Yeah. And we're right at the point of our discussion right now where there's, uh, the promises are right in front of you. Do you mind reading those promises? Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. The, we, if we are, this is the promises, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. All right, perfect. Do you have a favorite passage or part of the big book that you would like to share with us? Yeah, you know, I mean, we got a few, definitely. One that just always seems to pop out and, on um, page 25, the great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep 
and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So that one is a big one. I, I <clears throat> there's, there's, if you ask me the question, <laughs> it probably would be different in five years from now, and it was different, you know, fifteen years ago, and it was different thirty years ago, and it was different thirty six years ago. I That's mean, it's interesting. It's you know, it's 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 like your favorite passage. It's like one that really sticks out overall in general. That's a, what I just read is a pretty big, uh-huh. you know, it's it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty meaty, yeah. you know, and, and it, it, it's, it's stuck with me for many, many years. But I will say this that's interesting. If this is from the 12 and 12, and this kind of, it lets me off the hook a little bit. It doesn't give me a pass to be an idiot and go out and do stuff, but it gives, it, it, it lets me off the hook and, and really kind of reminds me that I'm never going to be perfect and I shouldn't try to be perfect. Um, I mean, I guess we strive to be, have something perfect, but. But it says, this is on page 66, this is step six. No matter how far we have progressed, desires will always be found which oppose the grace of God. So it's like, no matter how good I get, no matter how wonderful I'm doing (laughs) in my life, whatever it is, Uh I'm always gonna be doing things that oppose the grace of God. I mean, because I'm a human. And I go past God's intended purpose with these instincts. So my, you know, okay, so what does that mean? I'm always going to do these things that oppose the grace of God. The gauge of that is how I feel about what I'm doing. So I was like, how do you feel about that, Gary? Does that make, does that <laughs> seem like that would be God's, part of God's plan? Uh-huh. And I can go, you can go down the road, like you mentioned all the seven deadly sins earlier, which is, uh-huh. they're all related to, you know, the step six and character defects and shortcomings and stuff. And I can relate to that. But the key is, and my experience has been this, how do you feel about that? Does that seem like it's going okay? Uh-huh. Are, do you, are those that, have you gone past what God's intended purpose is for eating cookies? <laughs> Well, what is God's intended purpose for me to eat? Does you think God's intended purpose is to eat 25 cookies? And one soup. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe so, but probably you know, not. And that's just a light version of, yeah, of yeah. character defects and shortcomings. But yeah. so it's like it lets me off the hook. But at the same time, it kind of, you know, obviously I need to continue to, to look at stuff and grow. But You've been sober a long time. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the concept of the longer that you're sober, the the, the road and the pathway uh, narrows as far as what's acceptable behavior and not acceptable behavior? Yeah, I, I mean, I, yeah, for sure. I didn't know what that meant at first. Like, you know, the road gets narrow. That sounded so, like, kind of negative or limited in, in what... I'm going to be offered here in this, in this life. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would, would expect in the beginning that I'd, the more I get on board with this program, the more I seek God's will that I'm going to, that things are going to get bigger mm-hmm. and wider and more open. Yeah. But what it really means is, is that I can, I can't do the same things that I used to be able to do mm-hmm. and not feel anything. Right. So, so it's like the road gets narrow because I can't do that stuff without yeah. a price to, to pay the stuff that you could get away with at 10 years sobriety if you were still doing those behaviors at 20 years sobriety it wouldn't it wouldn't fly or it wouldn't be as comfortable that's right just because it's outside the scope of what probably god's will is for us whether whatever lane you're traveling in financially sexually food emotionally um taking too many naps 
<laughs> whatever that is. And pride. Yeah, pride. pride stuff. Yeah, I got a lot of guys that I'm working with that are working on pride. I got a lot of guys that are working on that right now in step six. Um, have you ever been to any AA conferences or NA conferences? And did you like them? What, what was your experiences with conferences? Yeah, I've been to a lot of them. I, I went to a lot of them in the beginning. There was a big one at the Palm Springs used to have this big powwow. And well, that was a big one. And that was fun. And, wow. and um, I used to go to those and I'd go and then out here in, in Texas, you know, I've been to the the, the roundup and, and the gathering of the Eagles and some stuff like that. And, and I, I enjoy them. I think it's a place for fellowship and a great place to, uh, you know, meet new people and hear some good speakers and, and just connect with, with others, you know. So I've, all, I've always loved con- conferences for sure. Have you done the Crested Butte conference yet? You know what? It's funny you're saying that. I've never done it. And I was telling Christy, I said, I really want to do that soon. And it's in July, I think. Mm-hmm. And we just missed it, of course. But I, I definitely want to go up there and, and go to that. Highly recommend it. It's probably my favorite conference outside of the international conferences. Okay. Yeah, the internationals, I'm totally down for. The weird thing about that Crested Butte conference um, is that it runs Monday through Friday. Oh, it's Monday to Friday. It's, it's like during the week. It's during the week. It's take weird. Off. <laughs> yeah, it's weird to go to an AA conference. First of all, it's five days instead of like, you know, usually Friday, Saturday, Sunday, usually on the weekends. Um, but the Crescent Butte conference is, is unbelievable. I had a guy drag me up there and uh, I've been back several years in a row and it's, it's amazing. How has sobriety helped you be a better businessman? Mm. You know, it's a... Uh, look at that I'm, I'm in the garment business I sell clothing you know and um, I sell I'm, I sell to stores and I sell to retailers and and uh, I've got like 65 accounts and I'm pretty close to every single one of those store owners and th- they're not always happy you know things happen mm-hmm. and we're dealing with factory direct we have our own factory in china and blah 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 and so you know there's things that happen and they're not always happy so it's interesting my behavior and the way that i have talked to people my first thought sometimes is i want to tell them how i feel about the way they're talking to me uh-huh. or i want to hit the ball back over the net kind of thing. And let's get into this debate and sparring and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And you know what? It's, it's interesting in business. I, I don't do that. So sometimes I, I, I found a way and I've been doing this for seven years now. I found a way this particular business to um, just stop and let them do whatever they're doing. They just want to be heard. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like work with a newcomer. They just want to be heard. They want to tell you their story. <laughs> or being married. Or being, or being married. Very good. Very good. Very good. They just want to be heard. Yeah. And so they want to tell you the problems. And then you know what I do? And I'd rather than say this, mm-hmm. yeah, but blah, 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 blah. I just stop and go, you know what? I understand. I'm so sorry. What I'm going to do is, is I'm going to talk to the factory. I'm going to talk to this. I'm going to try and now I know that that store is behind on paying us. Mm-hmm. I know that this lady is completely out of her mind for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these things that I have kind of the backstory, uh-huh. but my, what I've learned is, is that, you know, what is that going to really make a difference for us? Probably not in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I've just learned how to go, you know what? It's cool. And that's like love and tolerance of others really is what that is yeah. for me. And so it's just back up and chill and just kind of take the defuse it, you know? 
Yeah. That's uh, one of the things I've learned, but I've learned a lot of other, other stuff. But. Um, I'm going to ask you the last question, and then I'll swing back and ask you another pre-last question. Okay, so do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? But before I ask you that, I wanted to swing back about an hour ago and get back to your morning routine with your wife. Uh, you told me that hers is quite impressive. She does it for an hour, an hour and a half. My question to you is, do you guys do any of that part together or does she off just in a little side room doing it herself? And then if that's true, what are you doing on the other side? If you does yours last an hour and a half too, or you do 20 minutes or do y'all interface co co mingle your deal or how does it work in the morning in your house? Wow. So it, mine doesn't look anything like hers. I will say that in the beginning of our relationship, Mine doesn't look like anything like hers, meaning time spent, you know, the, the, the depth of it or anything like that. But what I will say is in the beginning of our relationship, which I really remember being so valuable, and it does talk about it in our literature where we can come together in the morning with our loved ones, you know, is we used to meditate and pray together and we'd each read stuff to each other and then talk about it and meditate and pray. Now we, now I think that there's amazing value in that. I, I, I can't tell you how amazing that is. If you can do that on a regular basis. Now we, we have meditated together lately. You know, we will do that for sure. But mine looks different. Mine, it's like, I'm kind of doing this, this thing all day in a way, but without the quiet time, obviously. Like I do a lot of stopping through the day uh -huh. and just say, okay, what would, what would, you know, and I have this quiet moment, like maybe a minute or two where I say, God, you know, what, what, what am I supposed to do here? Uh -huh. uh, what would you have me be? What am I supposed to do? So I have that kind of going through and I know that's not morning stuff, but it's, it's kind of like, I kind of do my version of the morning stuff all day in a way. I, I need to spend more time. Uh -huh. I, I would like to spend more time in the meditation part. Mm -hmm. uh, reading is one thing, but it says in our 11 step, prayer and meditation. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say prayer and quiet time. It doesn't say prayer and walk around the block and close your eyes every periodically. It's meditation. And mm -hmm. if you read the definition of that, yeah. I am not always doing meditation. Mm -hmm. So basically I'm not always following directions. It's fun to lean into that, though, when you realize that it's a real piece of business and you want to expand your step 11 prayer and meditation more. You can always do that at any point. Just for you know, sure decide to do it. Um, I've gone through ups and downs and fluctuations with um, where I'm at with my morning meditation. And I will tell you, I, I, I'm married as well. And I, I walked a little bit different path than you. I did not meet my wife in the program. I met her out in the real world. And we got married and my morning, um, my morning routine looked like me reading, uh, AA literature, getting on my knees and praying and asking God to keep me sober and doing all that. But to be a hundred percent honest with you and our listeners, I was in the beginning of our marriage, uh, borderline semi embarrassed about that for mm -hmm. some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I was borderline semi embarrassed about that because I didn't know what she was going to think about that or you if mean she uh, if she was going to like judge you for yes being, i didn't know what she was going to think uh -huh. and so what, being like this woo woo guy that was like yeah <laughs> yeah just like i just like I she like, probably found it to be attractive really i knew it was working for me and i didn't want to stop it but i didn't know if i wanted so what i did was in early sobriety well not even early sobriety i was like eight nine ten years sober i would go and i would hide in the bathroom yeah at eight nine ten years sober 
freshly married because I didn't get married till I was like seven or eight years sober. Seven years sober, I think I got married. So I'm seven or eight years sober, and I'm hiding in my bathroom with my newly acquired wife laying in bed sleeping, and I'm in the bathroom with the door shut, mm-hmm. reading AA literature and praying on my knees, <laughs> and you know, getting my day started right and getting in the right headspace, and then going out there and killing it. And then, long story short, I started to read. You know, I had read page 85, 86, and 87 a bunch, but it starts talking about how that we can have our wiser loved ones join us in morning meditation. And I was like, well, how am I going to approach her? And how do I feel about that? So I started to ask her occasionally. I'd be like, you know, I do this deal every morning. I get on my knees and I pray and I read this Mm -hmm. literature. Would you like to be a part of that on any level? And she said, yes, you know. That's great. Um, I didn't necessarily include her too much in the AA stuff, even though every once in a while I did read her the Daily Reflection. We'd be laying in bed. There's a book called Daily Reflections, and I would read that to her occasionally. But it didn't really pertain to her because she's not a full-blown alcoholic, full-blown drug addict, full-blown selfish person like I am. So it didn't really kind of bounced off her. So she started to get her own books, uh, more more Jesus-based and, and, and Christian-based for herself. I think it was called Jesus Calling and all these other books that she started to get. So she would do that. And I want to close with this. Where it is now, what is it looking like now, several, several, 14 years after we got married, what it looks like now is in the morning when I'm taking my son to school or she's going to work or whatever, we always um, attempt, it doesn't happen every single time, I'll be honest with you, but we always attempt to make it a real piece of business at my house for all three of us, my 11-year-old son, my wife, and myself to meet at the front door when one of us is leaving. And we've got a two-year-old golden retriever that loves to get in on the prayer circle too. And so we circle up right by the front door. I'll hold my wife's hand. I'll hold my son's hand. And then my son will hold my hand. And then in his right hand, he'll hold the golden retriever's left ear. And then my wife with her right hand will hold my left hand. And with her left hand, hold the golden retriever's right ear. Wow, that's cool. So we've got a circle going, three humans and a golden retriever. And we're holding his ears or her ears as, as a deal. And I kind of lead the prayer because, you know, the Bible talks about, well, mostly because they probably don't want to do it. And mostly because the Bible talks about the man being the spiritual leader of the house. And so I get there and I say every morning out loud to my 11-year-old son and my wife and my golden retriever, I said, this is, a first, this is exactly what it sounds like. I say this, I say, God, please don't let me drink any alcohol or use any drugs today. Please put me in a position where I can be of service to others. Protect me and protect my wife and my son and let us make good decisions today. Let us make good food choices today to put healthy food into our body and let us relax and take it easy knowing that you are the creator and that you love us and that everything's going to be okay no matter what. And it sounds like that almost exactly every morning. And then we all say amen and we all go out and take on the day. And that was not like that when I met her and it was not like that at the beginning of our marriage. But that is what it has progressed into. And um, Where do you think that came from? Because I wanted to include my wife and my son in my morning get down. Because it, from my observation, they weren't getting that nourishment. Yeah. Uh, my wife would wake up out of bed if it was left to her own devices, like a shotgun had gone off. <laughs> <laughs> and she would just jump out of bed and then run and get coffee and run and let the dogs go out and pee and then run and get breakfast and then run and get him dressed. And I was like, there's really not a lot of time for her to get centered and, um, you know, right with God. So I would like to provide that for her by taking anywhere between a 45 second and 95 second break in the morning hurriedness of, of life just happening so quickly 
that if we can take that, you know, just that minute, minute and a half break by the front door as we exit the home, it kind of recalibrates our thoughts and gets us in a position to do it. And my son's only 11, so he's definitely not thinking about that usually or wanting to do that. He's more thinking about other things. But when I pause us all and say, hey, let's all think about the fact that, that God loves us and that we're working for him today and we need his help today, it puts us in a right frame of mind to move forward. And that's... You know, yeah, that's great. Love only, hearing that. It's only taken me twenty years to get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 I thought your uh, golden retriever. Mm-hmm. It's weird to think that he might be the mm-hmm. the most spiritual part of that <laughs> whole. <laughs> he's grounding us. He's not going to work. He's not checking Facebook. He he's, he's, doing he's nothing. He's so chill. Yeah. All he's doing is just loving people. And that's one thing I've enjoyed about being sober in pet ownership is I really get to see the magic and the light in his eyes when we walk in the door and a little bit of sadness when we leave. Oh, and yeah. Just being around us. All he cares about is him and my son love each other and they're best friends. And it's just really cool to see an 11 year old boy and a two year old golden retriever and the love affair that those two have with each other. And it's just, I'm glad to be sober for it. And I'm glad to be around. Cause if I was drinking, I might not notice that. Mm-hmm. And if I was drinking, I might be in prison, <laughs> not even in the same zip sure. code or house, or I could be an institution somewhere. So I'm, I'm realizing that, that, that I need to be grateful and I am grateful. Um, just to let the listeners know, like I said, I don't talk about myself that much on this podcast, but just to let the listeners know who you're listening to all the time, I want you guys to know that I'm comfortable in my own skin almost all the time now. And it didn't used to be like that. I used to have to take drugs and alcohol on a daily basis to get through the day. And I haven't had to do that in a very long time. Next month, it'll be 21 years sober. And so my shout out to the listener is, if it can happen for me, it can happen for you. And I've progressed to a point where I'm comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. But guess what? My life still has challenges. My my life still has problems and issues. But I circle back to what Gary was saying an hour ago. I am in a position now where I feel like God's got me and I'm going to be okay no matter what. No matter what's coming down the front windshield of my life as I'm driving my little car down the road, I can see storms coming or issues coming in. Sometimes I get blindsided, but I always have this thought in my mind, I'm going to be okay. God's here. He's got me. He loves me. And that's that, awesome. That's good. It's the same thing you were talking about, Argos. We both yeah, got that. Love that. Um, do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? Anything Anything you want to say to wrap it up? Any, anything you want to tell, tell our people out there? Because there's a lot of them out there listening. Yeah, no, the only the only thing that comes to mind is that if you are struggling f- with any addiction or uh, alcoholism or codependency with family members or, you know, people that are, are drinking and, and really hurting themselves and you're not, but you are, are married to them or, you know, related to them in some way or they're just a good friend. I mean, there's so many great resources out there. And like you said before, I mean, there's, Lots of ways to, to get help, uh, to, I mean, to uh, quit drinking. But you and I happen to do it in a 12-step program. And so I would just say that, you know, for those that are looking for help, there's, there's, there's just a lot of help out there. And it's, it's a matter of reaching out. And there's, if you go to a meeting somewhere, like a 12-step meeting, and you don't like it, try a different one. Because mm-hmm. that one might be just not, you know, just not jive with that, you know. So try another one and, or, or a few of them. 
So, uh, but that would be the only thing I'd have. Can you give some examples of what you're talking about? Like, what do you mean by resources? I can think of celebrate recovery. Yeah, resources. To mind. Like what? Yeah, celebrate recovery. Or there's there's a there's a Buddhist approach. I forget what the guy that started that um, wrote a book and started it. But celebrate recovery is obviously more faith based. You know, religious approach. Mm-hmm. Um, the twelve step program. Um, yoga, maybe. I don't know yeah, if yoga can get yoga you sober, but that might be good. Yeah. I mean, you know, yoga is a mindful, you know, kind of a mindful approach that would probably incorporate, be a part of the Buddhist approach, mm-hmm. which is the, um, I can't remember the name of it. It's a program though. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some people do it clinically, you know, uh, there's some great therapists. I mean, I, you know, I don't, uh, I didn't get sober going to a therapist. I didn't stop doing drugs going to a therapist. But mm-hmm. people suffer from a lot more things than than we know about. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think guys, and I can be guilty of this too, is we put them in some, you know, was, we put them in this category of, oh, he's an alcoholic. Well, this guy might have a severe trauma from the war or from his childhood. And you know, some severe stuff that needs to be addressed. And that stuff is standing in the way of him getting him or her getting the help they need for their alcoholism, let's Mm -hmm. say. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of things going on, I think, with people that we don't always know about. And so there's help for them too. You know, it's kind of a somewhat of an outside issue. But then again, it really can tie in with alcoholism and drug addiction for sure. Uh, in my own personal experience, I've had to um, go that route as well as somebody that was sober in AA, was trying and did have a lot of traction. I had to, at like four or five, six years sober, had to go outside of Alcoholics Anonymous and get some counseling and pay somebody $125 an hour to listen to me and to talk to me. And I was a little, little bit mad about the price structure of the deal, but I got through it. And uh, it's not even 125 per hour. They... they they start shutting it down at about 50 minutes into the conversation. And I'm like, so it's 125 for 50 minutes. Is that what yeah. we're doing now? Yeah. But I got some relief there. And I was, uh, I was a little disappointed and sad and shocked that I, I couldn't find every single answer I needed to every single problem that I had in the uh, context of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's for me. I had to go outside sure. and talk to somebody with a lot of letters after their names that was, that was certified to help me with, with that. And, and I did receive some help there. So I encourage people to do that. Um, would you like to give our listeners any of your contact information so they can find out more about you or get in touch with you if they need to? Yeah, you just give my email address. It's uh, Gary, G-A-R-Y-C-O-F-F-M-A-N at gmail.com. So it's Gary Kaufman at gmail.com. Well, I appreciate that. I want to thank you for joining us on Sober Shares this afternoon. It's been a moving experience, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a blast. I totally appreciate it. I'm going to read uh, page 164 right here. It's the last uh, page of our um, literature as far as the program is concerned, outlined in the big book. Here we go. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation, what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if, you, if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of the past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, we'll see you guys on the next episode.